Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Do you watch wrestling? Some of you might. Today, the WWE, World Wrestling Entertainment, formerly the WWF, World Wrestling Federation, broadcasts to more than 180 countries and has approximately 11 million fans in just the United States. They employ around 800 people, took $1.3 billion in revenue in 2022, and while more financially successful now, they were even more popular three or four decades ago. In its heyday of the 1980s and early 90s, the golden era of wrestling, Wrestling wasn't only something to watch, it was a way of life for tens of millions of diehard fans. In 1988, Andre the Giant versus Hulk Hogan drew 33 million viewers. Still the most watched wrestling match in history, at least when you're talking about viewers watching it live. Hogan's popularity cannot be understated. Hulkamania was very, very real. I was a member. Hulkamania's coming for you, brother. You'll be trying to drink your own sweat to survive, brother. No one has ever had more brothers than Hulk Hogan. The Hulkster was 6'7", 300 pounds of pure muscle-bound, brother-spouting entertainment. I loved it. And his popularity was in large part due to a perfect lightning-in-a-bottle situation, with World Wrestling Federation CEO Vince McMahon Jr. catching the cable TV wrestling wave just in time and having the capital and confidence to invest in the company's future. The modern-day interpretation is that Vince McMahon took pro wrestling from a series of small regional promotions spread out across the United States to a unified national promotion featuring modern production and some rock and roll energy. But in reality, many of the innovations credited to the WWF had already happened in Dallas, Texas. In world-class championship wrestling, WCCW, years before the first WrestleMania. And the man in charge of that promotion was one of the most famous names in wrestling at that time, Fritz Von Erich. Born Jack Adkison, he played football at Southern Methodist University as a young man, but when he was kicked off his football team for having the audacity to marry his sweetheart Doris, uh, after some soul-searching, he decided to pivot to a different sport, professional wrestling. He'd christened himself Fritz Von Erich, a Nazi heel, an over-the-top wrestling villain, villain caricature. The baddest of the bad. He was often billed in newspapers as a stormtrooper from Stuttgart, 
who subdued his terrified rivals with his trademark finishing move, the Iron Claw. Spreading and clenching his fingers over his opponent's face, Von Erich would apply pressure until the blood flowed. He was smashing their faces, brother, with the demonic unnatural power of Hitler's evil flowing through his cold anti-American veins, brother. Or maybe those guys might have cut their own faces with a little wrestling trick. Or Fritz nicked their faces uh, with some other kind of entertainment trickery. Whatever the case, it looked like he was squeezing blood out of his opponent's faces with impossible strength. Pretty badass signature move. Fritz would uh, soon not only wrestle, but get into where the real money in pro wrestling was. Promotion. He learned how to book wrestlers and market matches in the Dallas-Fort Worth area starting in 1966. In 1982, his promotion, then known as Big Time Wrestling, changed its name to World Class Championship Wrestling in concert with the beginning of a new television show on Channel 39 in Dallas. Long before Vince McMahon, Fritz was drawing thousands and thousands of viewers, making national TV syndication deals, packing stadiums, and making millions. But his pursuit of making more and more body slam shekels came at a price, a terrible price. No other family in professional wrestling has ever endured more tragedy than the Von Erichs. Beginning with the death of Fritz's six-year-old son, Jack Jr., the Von Erich legacy would become one tainted by blood, drugs, medical complications, and a hefty dose of familial pressure that would lead to the premature deaths of five of Fritz's six sons, many of them by their own hand. By the end of the 1990s, the Von Erich legacy was one of death and illness, isolation and injury. And now the pro wrestling world started referring to the curse of the Von Erichs. Were the Von Erichs truly cursed? Is that the only thing that explains the bizarre magnitude of their tragedies? Let's find out on this week's Sunday, 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 the Von Erichs take on the world superstars of wrestling edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. Welcome to another installment of the Cult of the Curious. I'm Dan Cummins, Suck Master General, man who wants to pour ants into baby killer's eye sockets. Dude who wishes he was half as tough as the KFC's Colonel Sanders. And you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise be to good boy Bojangles, and glory be to Triple M. Uh, I have to excuse my voice if it gets a little scratchy today. Apparently, uh, Coeur d'Alene is just ground zero right now for just every virus that's going around on the planet. <laughs> Everybody I know is sick, uh, had one thing a couple weeks ago, and then got better for one day, and then immediately got another thing. I've been, I've been sleeping. I've been sleeping more than I've probably slept in years. But still got a little scratchy voice. Uh, one of the last reminders that I'll be at the Blue Note in Honolulu, Saturday, January 27th. That'll be my last stand-up show for quite a while, I think. Probably the only date for 2024. Uh, stick around for today's updates at the end of this show for some incel-related hilarity coming from a post in the Cult of the Curious 3 out of 5 stars private Facebook group. A lot of clever meat sacks over, over there. Uh, and now let's get started. When I saw the poster for the new movie about the Von Erich family, The Iron Claw, I grabbed my phone, started Googling in the theater, uh, right away knew I wanted to research this. Still haven't seen the movie. We're waiting to watch it. My son, Kyler, who wants to see it uh, in the theater over Christmas break. That's what I'm recording this. Uh, based on how much real drama it is based on, I'm going to guess it's a fucking awesome film. So what do you know about curses? This might seem like a topic more suited for scared to death. 
bear with me. It's relevant. Uh, are they even real? For about the entirety of recorded human civilization, and I imagine for centuries previous to the written word, many, many of us meat sacks have believed in the magical power of curses. Spells placed on an object, person, place, family, etc. that lead to inevitable tragedy and misfortune, often including death. According to supernatural legend, many famous objects are claimed to be cursed. Things like King Tut's tomb and the Hope Diamond. Even pieces of writing, like the Shakespeare play Macbeth, have been considered cursed. In American popular culture, most curses and efforts to try and break them seem to reside in one very specific arena. No pun intended. The world of sports. Throughout American sports history, fans, players, owners alike have indulged in very odd rituals intended to bring about victory, right? From playoff beards to wilder trends, right? Professional baseball manager George Stalling was famous for freezing in place whenever his team started a rally. He would remain frozen until the rally was over, no matter how long that took, which would be pretty entertaining to watch. I would be extra motivated as a player to try and keep the rally going just to see how long he could stay frozen. Ideally, until he pissed or shit himself. How committed are you, George? Uh, Michael Jordan always wore his North Carolina shorts under his bull's trunks. Wade Boggs would eat chicken on game days. Can any of that actually affect the game? Sure. At least in a placebo, you know, kind of way. I mean, sometimes really believing or placebo effect, uh, placebo effect rather, sometimes really believing that something works actually does make it work. Most would argue that it's this belief, not the ritual or the object or whatever, that helps create the desired outcome. Maybe it's all psychological. Maybe the act of doing something specific, a a ritual, just gives superstitious people comfort, helps them believe that victory is assured, which then boosts their confidence, which then does actually help pave the way to success. Maybe it's that easily explainable. But some epic runs of bad luck in sports uh, seem to be less explainable. They feel almost supernatural, like strange and dark forces are at work. There's always the argument, of course, for coincidence, but sometimes even the most skeptical person is given pause over how certain curses defy the odds. One of the most famous sports curses is the supposed Billy Goat curse placed on the Chicago Cubs. In 1945, a tavern owner known as William Billy Goat Cianus was reportedly prevented from bringing his pet goat Murphy into Chicago's Wrigley Field to see the Cubs play the Detroit Tigers in the World Series. And supposedly, Cianus put a curse on the Cubs saying that they would not win that or any other World Series ever again. Before this, the Cubs had only won the World Series twice before, in 1907 and 1908. When they lost the World Series in 1945, the curse gained credence. And then in 2016, when the Cubs finally won the World Series for the first time in over a century, the media promoted the idea that the curse had finally been broken. So the Cubs did win another World Series again after Sionis' curse, but it took them over seven decades to do so. The Billy Goat curse, similar to the curse of the Bambino, which supposedly began when the Boston Red Sox traded Babe Ruth in 1919 and then ended 85 years later when the team won the World Series in 2004. There's also rapper Lil B's curse on Kevin Durant, which Lil B issued in a 2011 tweet and then lifted in 2017 in another tweet. When the Golden State Warriors won the NBA Finals that year with Durant earning MVP, many sports media members jokingly, or maybe not entirely jokingly, proclaimed that Lil B had helped by lifting his curse. And there are even weirder curses, like the Madden curse. The running joke is that every year, NFL stars send letters to EA games begging them not to have their likeness used on the cover of the annual Madden football video game. The very first cover guy in 1999 was running back Garrison Hurst. He broke his leg following being placed on the cover, 
then went on to miss two full seasons and missed out on a decent chance at making the Hall of Fame when he was never the same when he came back. Following running back Barry Sanders on the cover in 2000, uh, best pure running back ever to play the game, in my opinion. My God, that guy was a fucking beast. Uh, He retired during training camp despite still being at the peak of his athletic powers. Following his cover feature in 2002, quarterback Dante Culpepper threw a career-high 23 interceptions and also fumbled an additional 23 times, which was an NFL record as well. Dude played in the Pro Bowl two years prior. Now he was turning the ball over like no one had ever done in pro football before. Running back Marshall Falk, that guy was also incredible, uh, saw his career start to decline right after being the 2004 cover. After making the 2006 cover, quarterback Donovan McNabb tore his ACL. 2007 cover running back Sean Alexander injured his foot, would never be the same, be out of the league two seasons later, and on and on and on. And then there are these sports curses that involve not just losing or injuries, but death. A lot of race car drivers, for instance, believe there might be something cursed about Talladega. Legend says that Talladega Super Speedway was built atop sacred land taken from the Creek Nation in the 1830s, and that a medicine man looked back and cursed the land for all time as his people were being forced marched from Alabama to Oklahoma. Bobby Isaac would leave his car on the track in 1973 because he claimed he started hearing some spooky-ass voices shortly after a young driver had died several laps earlier. In 1974, multiple cars were found with slashed tires and sand in their gas tanks, and a crewman lost his leg in a freak crash. Bobby Allison badly wrecked in 1987, and then his son died in a helicopter crash on the racetrack's field years later. Obviously, All of that can be chalked up to coincidence. Also, these little bits of trivia ignore the overwhelming number of other people, people who raced at Talladega, for example, who didn't have shit happen to them. When you look at how infrequent bad things actually do happen there, right, the curse gets harder to believe in. But maybe harder to write off the curse of the Von Erichs, perhaps the most tragic sports curse of them all. I certainly don't know of a worse one. According to some, it started when Jack Addison... Adkison, excuse me, a young man from the zero stoplight town of Jewett, Texas, adopted a new name for his wrestling identity, Fritz Von Erich. He did it so that he could wrestle as a heel or a bad guy. In this case, a Nazi uh, who were especially hated by audiences in 1950s America, uh, as one would hope. Pretty fucking weird and sad if Nazis were fan favorites. That'd be a you know a little bit of a slap in the face to the soldiers who just died the decade previous uh, fighting them. Also pretty insulting to the millions of member uh, millions of people who had just lost family members to Nazi aggression. But Fritz, you know, was not glorifying the Nazis, wrestling more theater than sport, and it was basically like he was an actor playing a Nazi in a theatrical presentation. While Fritz would lie about where he was from, saying he was born in Berlin, his new name didn't actually fall too far from home. Von Erich was his grandma's maiden name. Uh, Some say the tragedy had previously followed that side of his family, and now when Fritz took on the name, it started to follow his family. Or perhaps the curse had nothing to do with Fritz's grandma. A story retold in sports journalist David Shoemaker's book, The Squared Circle, Life, Death, and Professional Wrestling, claims that a man appeared at Von Erich's dressing room after a match of his in Chicago. Uh, going off on him for wearing Nazi symbols and using Nazi gestures, he found it all extremely offensive for good reason. The man rolled up his sleeve to reveal a tattoo inked by actual Nazis during, a World War II, during World War II at a concentration camp where he'd been held, and he said he'd lost all seven of his sons in Nazi death camps. When Fritz didn't agree to leave his Nazi act behind, the man said ominously that he sincerely hoped that nothing like that would ever happen to Fritz, Shoemaker wrote. 
And then, of course, Fritz would lose almost all of his sons. Not quite all of them, but real fucking close. Whatever the true origin of the curse, it certainly looks like the Von Eriks were cursed. The poor family have uh, suffered an almost unimaginable amount of tragedy for one group of parents and their kids. The first incident occurred when the couple's first child, Jack Jr., died in a very freak accident when he was just six. But the legend wouldn't really start to take off until Fritz's other sons, all of them wrestlers like their dad, began to die one after another after another, most by the age of 25. Did a true curse take them down? An incredible run of bad luck? What? I'm going to lay it all out, and you can come to your own conclusions as I come to mine. Before we get into all of that in the timeline, I'd like to first walk you through a brief overview of the history of professional wrestling so we know what we're talking about, and because it's fun to learn some shit. Uh, I'll walk you through the history of wrestling, starting with the sports origins, as a bunch of sweaty, greased-up, naked pairs of man meat, pushing and shoving and slamming and thrusting to a more refined sport. It was practiced in medieval courts and taught by wrestling masters of their day to a sort of sideshow act that ended up looking a lot more like an elaborate play than an actual sport, complete with characters with origin stories, motivations, and feuds. A big soap opera on steroids, quite literally on steroids. Uh, then in today's timeline, we'll see how Fritz von Erich rose from a young football player named Jack Atkinson to a famous wrestler and an important wrestling promoter, very wealthy one in Dallas, Texas, where he eventually would establish the powerful von Erich wrestling dynasty and then see it take a fast and tragic fall. So let's, let's begin. Should come as no surprise that wrestling is a very old sport, almost as old as human civilization itself. In some forms, probably older. After all, in the uh, in the days before modern technology and outfits, it is a sport along with, you know, racing on foot that has basically no overhead. All you need are at least two people willing to struggle around in the dirt and you got yourself a wrestling match. Uh, my buddies and I got into wrestling each other when I was in college and we would body slam the shit out of each other. One minute, you might be at a party. Everyone's standing around, chatting, chatting around the keg. And the next, you might be getting knocked into by two idiots thrashing around on the ground in some primitive show of strength. I loved it. Uh, we only actually retired after I DDT'd a buddy, and we all thought for a second that he broke his neck. Uh, since we were friends with a grad student who became a quadriplegic when he got body slammed at a party as an undergrad and did break his neck, we felt like we should uh, probably leave the body slamming and fucking pile drivers and DDTs to the pros. I think it was the right call. Uh, wrestling most likely originated out of true hand-to-hand -hand combat, substituting the submission of a contestant for his death. Because, you know, it's harder to convince somebody to participate in a fun sport if the loser dies. Uh, real death matches, gladiatorial battles, where people were forced to fight to the death and sometimes did wrestle, also occurred. Uh, works of art from as far back as around 3000 BCE depict ancient wrestling matches in Babylonia and Egypt. Uh, the Sumerian Gilgamesh epic has a description of some wrestling. Organized wrestling as a sport in India dates back to before 1500 BCE. Chinese documents from 700 BCE describe wrestling, as do Japanese records from the first century BCE. And there are all kinds of records of wrestling coming in from the ancient Greeks. Uh, the Greeks were big, big on wrestling. Those hot, hard Greek father daddies loved to slather themselves in some olive oil, rub their naked bodies against one another. Uh, they really did. Uh, young men belonged to palastras, or excuse me, palestras, palestras, formal wrestling schools that were the focal point of their social lives. Illustrations of wrestling on Greek vases and coins, vases, uh, are common throughout all periods of ancient Greece. And those guys, interestingly, uh, did wrestle buck naked. And they, would, and they would rub olive oil 
on their muscles. I feel like all of that could have been a, a bit problematic. You know, I don't mind some wrestling, but would, I would rather not. I, I would prefer not to have someone's ball sack swing around in front of my face during the match. You know, I don't want to get teabagged as I'm wrestling. Uh, and wrestling a guy with a boner, a boner lubed up with some oil, perhaps. That would certainly change the tone of the match, right? Could open the door to, uh, <laughs> to quite the intrusive finishing move. Uh, wrestling, nude wrestling was a spectator sport for the Greeks and part of their Olympic games going back to at least 776 BCE. There were two wrestling championships in these games. A toppling event for the, <clears throat> excuse me, toppling event for the best two or three of three falls and the pancration, which combined wrestling and boxing and ended in the total submission of one contestant when they were just too exhausted to continue to fight. Early origins of modern MMA. Upright wrestling was also part of the pentathlon event in the Olympic Games, about being fought until the clear-cut fall of one of the wrestlers. The most famous ancient Greek wrestler was Milan of Croton, or Croton, who won the wrestling championships of the Olympic Games six times. Right? Legend. OG Hulk Hogan. Milanomania. No one escapes the clutches of the Greek freak, brother. There's not enough olive oil in all of Greece to lube your way out of getting pinned this Friday night in Athens. The power of Milanomania will not be denied, brother. Wrestling would be far less popular among the Romans than it had been with the Greeks. And with the fall of the Roman Empire, references to wrestling disappeared in Europe until about 800 CE. Meanwhile, in the Middle East, when the Islamic rulers of Persia began hiring Turkic mercenaries around 800 CE, the soldiers brought with them a style of wrestling called Koresh, in which grips may be taken on their long, tight leather pants, uh, worn by the wrestlers, and the bout would end when the loser is thrown down on his back. A variation on this style continues today. For many years, wrestlers would use towels to wrap up opponents and manhandle them. Pants and legs uh, would not be able to be grabbed. Gradually, the Turks' wrestling ways took over the entire Muslim dominion, and their wrestling style spread. Later, Mongolian invaders in the 13th century introduced Mongolian wrestling, which received royal patronage, and wrestling became the national sport of modern Iran. And we can't forget about a form of wrestling that most of us are familiar with, uh, at least by name, sumo wrestling. Sumo, a Japanese belt wrestling style, was a popular spectator sport under imperial patronage starting in about 710 CE, lasting until 1185 CE. Originally a submission spectacle, sumo became a highly ritualized uh, as a toppling, toppling match with victory coming from forcing an opponent outside of this 12-foot circle. You know, kept going after the uh, 12th century. By the 17th century, sumo wrestling had become a professional sport in Japan. Meanwhile, back in Europe, wrestling occurred in several styles throughout the continent in the Middle Ages. The first recorded English match was held in London early in the 13th century. In England and Brittany, a form of jacket wrestling commonly called Cornwall and Devon survived from at least the 4th or 5th century. Wrestling as a martial skill was taught to the Knights of the Holy Roman Empire and wrestling instruction books appeared in manuscripts back before the introduction of printing even and thereafter in print. They knew the sport at that time as grappling. One writer of such books was a man named Ott Jude, a Jewish-German 15th-century wrestling master, and he is credited in multiple medieval combat treatises with a series of wrestling techniques including joint breaks, arm locks, and throws. Pretty badass. As the modern era began, the English kings Henry VIII and Charles II and the French king Francis I were some notable patrons of wrestling. Wrestling's uh, popularity then faded for a few centuries, but 
from the 18th century on, a procession of wrestlers or strong men would appear before crowds of spectators at fairs and theaters and in circuses, typically challenging all comers. Yeah, you could just join the show. You could get in there and wrestle yourself. Uh, notable figures from this era began with Englishman Thomas Topham of London in the 18th century and would culminate with Eugene Sandow, a German-born international figure whose popularity continued into the beginning of the 20th century. In the U.S., during the 19th century, wrestling became popular as a frontier sport. Abraham Lincoln was a noted local wrestler, who <laughs> this is crazy, who reportedly amassed 300 victories, bouts that would usually last until one contestant would verbally submit. According to legend, Honest Abe only lost one match in a dozen years. Hank Thompson, during the Black Hawk War of 1832, where Lincoln was serving with the Illinois Volunteers, bested him. And Lincoln was said to be gracious in that defeat. Is this the first time you're hearing about Abraham Lincoln, badass wrestler? If, if I knew it, I forgot. I don't feel like I knew that uh, before this week. That is absurd to me. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. At the Ford Theater in Washington, D.C., we have the match of the century. Let's get presidential. Honest Abe, the Kentucky Kid Lincoln, faces off in a steel cage match against John Wilkes, the assassin booth. Two men enter, only one leaves. The Kentucky Kid has the advantage in both height and weight, but Booth doesn't play by the rules and he'll have a loaded gun. Tickets are selling fast. Don't wait out and miss out on this once-in-a-lifetime event. Uh, 1992, Lincoln was officially recognized by the National Wrestling Hall of Fame as an outstanding American in the sport. Uh, the wrestling-obsessed city of Lincoln, Nebraska. The University of Nebraska Cornhuskers Corn Huskers have produced over 131 uh, all American wrestlers, or at least 131, as, as last counted on the site, over the last 100 years. In the second half of the 19th century, two wrestling styles developed that ultimately would come to dominate international wrestling Greco Roman and catch as can or freestyle wrestling. Uh, Greco Roman wrestling, popularized first in France, got its name for being based on the wrestling ways of the ancient Greeks and later the Romans. But, uh, you know. Uh, now those those hot, hard father daddies get their dinglings wrapped up. Greco-Roman wrestling for, forbids holds made below the waist, which results in an emphasis on throws, since wrestlers can't use trips to bring opponents to the ground or, or hook and or grab opponents' legs to avoid being thrown. I highly recommend uh, watching some Greco-Roman highlight videos on YouTube. It, it appears that you have to possess a, a real bendy neck to survive these matches. Like, it's fucking crazy. I can't believe how some of these guys pop right back up after being slammed so hard down on their heads and just their necks bent at crazy angles. If you want to see a dude with some legendary strength, look up highlights of Russian Greco-Roman wrestling champion Alexander uh, Karelin. Yeah, Alexander Karelin. Holy shit. This guy might be half bare. <laughs> it's fucking crazy. I, watch, I got sucked into watching these like videos. The man widely considered to be the greatest, most dominant, and just flat out scariest Greco-Roman wrestler of all time. He won the gold medal at the 1988, 1992, and 1996 Olympic Games before finishing in, uh, with a silver medal after Rulon Gardner uh, bested him at the 2000 Games. Six foot three, 286 pounds of freakish strength who would just pick up other 300-pound-ish dudes and just toss them over his head on a regular basis like it was nothing. He's now a Russian Federation senator, and I imagine he intimidates the fuck out of some of his fellow politicians. I would love—he still looks like he could throw down. I would just—he he just he just looks like he's a giga chat. Okay, he's a fucking giga chat. He's got thick wrists. 
Yeah, big skull, great jawline, deep set eyes, like a predator. Would love to see, uh, you know, uh, him come out of retirement for one more match and wrestle strong pony boy Putin and just not hold back. That would be so entertaining. That would probably be the most watched video of all time by millions and millions, by hundreds of millions of views on YouTube. Anyway, originally, uh, Greco-Roman wrestling matches were popularized at international expositions held in Paris. Then after its inclusion in the revived Olympic Games in 1896, Greco-Roman wrestling events were held at subsequent Olympic Games, except in 1900 to 1904. In the more popular freestyle wrestling, closer to today's WWE-style wrestling, any fair hold, trip, or throw is permitted outside of holds that endanger life or limb. Strangleholds, for example, are forbidden, as well as kicking, punching, butting with the head, and holding your opponent's clothing. Uh, Both styles became immensely popular and were soon regulated in formal competitions. On continental Europe, prize money was offered in large sums to the winners of Greco-Roman tournaments, and freestyle wrestling spread rapidly in the UK, the United States, and a few other Western nations like Canada and Mexico. An early golden age for the sport followed, cut short with the breakout of World War I in 1914. In 1898, the Frenchman Paul Pons, the Colossus, became the first professional world champion. In the U.S., early professional wrestling was dominated by Martin Farmer Burns and his pupil, Frank Gotch. Burns was renowned as a competitive wrestler who, despite never weighing more than about 175 pounds during his wrestler career, is said to have fought over 6,000 matches, like over 6,000 other wrestlers at a time when most matches were competitive contests and, and there were no weight classes. And he lost fewer than 10 of those matches. So he won at least 5,990 matches. That guy had some moves. Uh, while he was never a big dude, the 5'11 guy, uh, you know, pretty slender build, had a huge neck, like preposterously big neck. Uh, Burns' rigorous program of neck development built him an immense 20 inch, uh, yeah, 20 inch neck that possessed enough strength he could be dropped six feet on a hangman's noose and not be hurt. And that wasn't just him talking shit, that was a stunt. He would often perform at carnivals and fairs. That's absurd. Uh, the average neck circumference size uh, today for a grown man, of just a grown man of any size, 15.2 inches. So it seems like Farmer Burns was mostly neck. He weighed 175 pounds and about 165 of those pounds were neck. His pupil, Frank Gotch, regarded as peerless during his peak, was the first to actually claim the world's undisputed heavyweight championship by beating all contenders he faced in both North America and then Europe. He was a bigger guy, 5'11", weighed about 210. He became the world champion by beating European wrestling champion uh, George Hackenschmidt, both in 1908 and 1911, seen by modern wrestling historians as two of the most significant matches in modern professional wrestling history. By the end of the 19th century, in the US, UK, and a few other places, there were now two main strains of wrestling, one that was primarily an athletic competition, and another that was based more on entertainment, aimed to spice up carnivals and variety shows. And it was that kind that would lead to today's WWE. Now there was a division formed between, quote, professional wrestling based in non-competitive acrobatics and showmanship and, quote, amateur wrestling, which was actually the more competitive athletic version that was truly treated as a real sport. I think it's interesting that the better wrestling tacticians were the amateur ones now and not the professionals. Despite, ironically, not being as good at wrestling as amateur wrestlers, professional wrestlers became far more popular and got paid a lot more. <coughs> Excuse me. Like many others, George Hackenschmidt, that guy who was uh, beat by American Frank Gotch, 
Started as an amateur wrestler, but then quickly uh, signed to promoter Charles B. Cochran, who realized that Hackenschmidt's superiority in the ring was boring. It wasn't making for super interesting matches. It was slow, plotting, technical. His style was very tactical and not very theatrical. Uh, Cochran persuaded Hackenschmidt to learn some showmanship and wrestle many of his matches for entertainment rather than for sport, and it worked. Suddenly, Hackenschmidt was doing a lot more theater work than actual fighting, and he was making a lot more money than he ever did when he truly dominated the ring. It was clear by that by uh, excuse me, it was clear that by this point, the future of wrestling was tied to entertainment. These new entertainment matches would be called worked matches, that is purely performative matches with everything being choreographed ahead of time. Winners, losers are predetermined. Storylines are introduced. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, this all enabled promoters to introduce things like seemingly more violent styles with weapons and chair shots becoming popular. And since people weren't directly in danger, you know, weak little crybaby women were even given permission by their patriarchal righteous masters to compete. Lucifina, although she's aware I'm being sarcastic, uh, still looks like she's about to kick me in the nuts and pile drive me. After Gotcha's retirement in 1913, amateur actual wrestling, which was already fighting a losing battle and popularity with boxing, came to an end as a serious professional sport in both the U.S. and the U.K. Thereafter, especially in the U.S., through radio broadcasts and later through uh, telecasts, professional wrestling became more and more based in spectacle. Right? The winners divided deliberately into heroes and villains <coughs> Excuse me, were determined by promoters' financial desires, uh, what the paying audience wanted to watch rather than by athletic skill. Wrestling maneuvers became increasingly extravagant and artificial and lost most of their authenticity. Bouncing off the ropes to clothesline somebody, you know, or drop kick them, actually not a great fighting move. Uh, good luck pulling that shit off in the streets, but it's fun to watch in the ring. In the early 1900s, regional professional wrestling promotions became popular in Mexico, turning into a version of the Lucha Libra we recognize today. Colorful mass performers with high-flying aerial moves. Some of the first American counterparts to Mexico's Lucha Libre wrestlers were Ed Lewis, Billy Sandow, and Toots Mont. Yes, Toots, like our buddy Toots Martinez. And these three guys joined together to form their own wrestling promotion company in the 1920s. The three would be referred to as the Gold Dust Trio due to their financial success. And while he's not a household name now, in the 1920s, Ed Lewis rivaled the baseball player Babe Ruth and boxer Jack Dempsey in popularity. Big time, uh, you know, wild, wildly popular. Uh, promotions became very lucrative and were kind of ran like the mafia. Promoters, by having a stranglehold on regional matches, had a lot of power when it came to controlling and reducing the wages of wrestlers in their territories. As the promotion system grew, there were fewer independent promoters where independent wrestlers could find work, and wrestlers, if they wanted to make money, had to sign contracts with big, low-paying cartels. Their contracts would legally forbid them from wrestling in independent venues. Wrestlers who refused to play by the cartel's rules... <coughs> excuse me my god it won't leave me alone uh, would be barred from performing at its venues reminds me of the stranglehold that the improv and funny bone comedy club chains uh, for a while uh, both owned and booked by the same people used to have on the stand-up world before it was common to build up your own fan base through you know social media uh, specials podcasts whatever most comics focused very little on marketing and a lot on the craft of stand-up but since most working comics no matter how funny they were we're now totally dependent on having clubs to give them work, right? The clubs could really get away with paying them almost nothing. And the improv and funny bones, because they offered you the most work, they could pay you the least. You might only get 1500 bucks a week to headline four to seven shows that week, but they could give you 35 plus weeks of work a year. And for years, they were the only chain in the country that could give you that much work. So they were able to do that. 
If you took a $2,000 weekend to work for one of their competitors, well, they might take all your other weeks of work off of your calendar. So glad those days are over. And glad, you know, it sounds like a lot of these, uh, a lot of this regional stuff with wrestling uh, is now over. Uh, a good thing the wrestling cartels did was to begin to nationalize professional wrestling and help establish an authority to decide who was the one true world champion. Before a national promotion system, there were a ton of wrestlers across America simultaneously calling themselves world champions, which would sap public enthusiasm, you know, for professional wrestling in general. I mean, who cares if you're the world champion if, you know, two dozen other American wrestlers also the world champion and there's more world champions in Europe, you know, and more world champions all over the place really devalues the whole sport. Also, a smaller group of regional wrestling barons were able to work together and agree on a common set of match rules that fans could now easily keep track of, have some consistency. The issue over who got to be the champion and which promoter controlled said champion still a major point of contention among the early members of regional wrestling promotions, though. Only the champion would draw the biggest crowds wherever, you know, he performed and make the best money. And that would occasionally lead to schisms. By 1925, the promotion system had divided the country up into territories, which were the exclusive domains of specific promoters. And that system of territories would endure right up until Vince McMahon, co-founder of the WWE, drove those fragmented cartels out of their markets in the 1980s. While that small cartel of promoters hurt the income of a lot of wrestlers, also made others famous. And uh, to truly get famous in wrestling, historically, in the words of the 1959 musical Gypsy, you gotta get a gimmick. By the early 1930s, most wrestlers had adopted larger-than-life personas to generate more public interest. These personas could be uh, broadly characterized as either faces, good guys, audience generally cheered for, or heels, villains the crowd loved to boo and root against. Native Americans, cowboys, and snobbish English aristocrats, randomly, were the most common wrestling personas in the 1930s and 1940s. In addition to creating a memorable wrestling persona, the most popular wrestlers also had some kind of gimmick uh, in the form of a finishing move, right? Russian wrestler Andrei Chikatilo had a very memorable finishing move. Uh, he would stab the shit out of you as he tried to sexually assault you and then spontaneously ejaculate. What is big deal? So that's how I wrestle. Everyone have signature move. Some maybe have special slam, eye jerk and corner, uh, soft shamecock and bother no one. Or maybe bother someone very much when, you know, stab and come. Uh, the Butcher Rostov, making cameos for five years now. <laughs> and suck first, brother. Uh, Fritz von Erich would develop a super entertaining and popular trademark finishing move, the Iron Claw, the most successful and enduring gimmick to emerge uh, from the 1930s. Previous to that were uh, tag team matches. Promoters noticed prior to their introduction that matches would slow down, get boring as wrestlers in the ring got tired. Uh, but with a partner they could tag in and out with, you know, that gave them a chance to recharge their batteries, keep things fresh and exciting. Also gave heels another way to misbehave by double-teaming one of the other team's members to the delight of the crowd. Towards the end of the 1930s, faced with declining revenue thanks largely to the Great Depression, promoters uh, chose to focus on grooming charismatic wrestlers with little regard for their actual skill because it was charisma that drew the crowds and wrestlers who were both uh, skilled at grappling and charismatic were hard to come by. Since most of the public by that time knew and accepted that professional wrestling was fake to a degree, Realism was no longer paramount, and a background in authentic wrestling no longer mattered. The 40s then introduced another important aspect of modern professional wrestling, patriotism. U.S.A. U.S.A. Stand and salute the stars and stripes, brother, or the collective strength of the U.S. of fucking A will body slam you to oblivion. Woo! During World War II, wrestlers in the U.S. toured, starred in large war bond rallies. Others hired by the armed forces to provide instruction in hand-to-hand combat. 
other future Matt legends serving on the front lines around the world and will return to use their wartime contributions to boost their fame. Perhaps the most decorated American wrestler of this era was Brooklyn native Paul Bosch, who left wrestling to enlist in the Army, where he earned a Purple Heart, Silver Star uh, and Cluster, Bronze Star and Cluster, and French Croix de Guerre for actions in the Battle of the Hurtgen Forest while serving with the 121st Infantry Regiment. Bosch authored a memoir about his experiences, Road to Hurtgen, Forest in Hell, and also led the Houston and also would lead the Houston wrestling promotion until 1987. Another wrestler of the World War II era worried about his family's German heritage and that he might be thought of as being unpatriotic, Frederick Kenneth Blasey, uh, later to become known as the outrageous heel competitor and manager, Classy Freddie Blasey, <clears throat> excuse me, enlisted in the Navy where he served for 42 months in the Pacific to prove his loyalty to America. Blassie's famous over-the-top interviews would go on to inspire a fellow Kentucky resident who grew up watching him. Colonel motherfucking Sanders, Harlan, the gas station assassin Sanders, the Kentucky fried brawler, the Henry Vilhammer, and the only attorney in America not afraid to beat his own client's asses. No, no, Blassie's over-the-top interviews uh, would inspire fellow Kentucky resident Cassius Clay. The man who later became the heavyweight boxing champion of the world, Muhammad Ali, the greatest. The patriarch of the wrestling family we're focusing on today initially made his name in, uh, right after all this history I just laid out in the late 50s when he saw a market oversaturated with heroes, a.k.a. baby faces from the post-war era and decided the best thing he could do was to give the crowds a really, really good villain. Someone who they uh, would want to see get beat again and again, but also somebody terrifying enough to sometimes triumph even against the greatest heroes. He wanted to ratchet up the drama, increase the stakes, and he would settle on the persona of Fritz von Erich, America-hating Nazi stormtrooper. Let's now learn about his evolution into this uh, persona, rise to wrestling fame, his raising of his badass wrestling sons, who would help him create a real royal family of wrestling, the most famous wrestlers in the world for a few years, followed by the incredible amount of tragedy he and his wife would endure. In today's Let's Get Ready to Rumble Time Suck Timeline. Right after a word from today's sponsors. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, 
if you've learned anything, is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month, when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has 0 to 1 gram of net carbs, 0 grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the 2 grams of net carbs Hero Croissant, or the 1 gram of net carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. 5 grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for sticking around. And now it's truly time for a big high-flying, body-slamming, iron-claw-filled Von Erich timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. Jack Bernard Atkinson, born August 16, 1929 in Jewett, Texas. Uh, Jewett, located in Leon County, was founded in 1871 by the International Railroad Company. It's tiny, just 2.1 square miles, and pretty small population-wise, too. In the 1930 census, it registered just 516 people. Still pretty small. 
with about 1,200 people there today. A uh, little town has had three notable inhabitants, Alger, Texas, Alexander, early 20th century American blues singer who died of syphilis at the age of 53. So seems like he might've had a real good time touring before he left us. Romus Burgeon, U.S. Marine, author of the memoir, Islands of the Damned, a Marine at war in the Pacific. He would be portrayed in the HBO miniseries, The Pacific, by Irish actor Martin McCann. And he died just a few years ago at the age of 96, uh, also of syphilis. Had a great time last few years of his life after his wife passed. <laughs> I actually don't know what he died of. Uh, and of course, by far the most famous, Fritz Atkinson, soon to become known as Fritz von Erich. And it was Jack Atkinson. Uh, I don't know why I called him Fritz there. Uh, soon to become known as Fritz von Erich. Uh, he'll leave us at the age of 68 when he passes away from, uh, from syphilis. It's rumored he contracted it from Roma's Spurgeon. Uh, rumored by me and only me. Everyone else says he passed away from brain and lung cancer. And probably some fucking heartache. Uh, according to The Secret of the Iron Claw by Ron Mullinax, a close friend of the Von Erichs, who would write about Fritz during his final years in wrestling, uh, Fritz would describe himself this way. I was born Jack Bernard Atkinson, August 16th, 1929, in Leon County, Texas, during the Great Depression. My father, Benjamin Rush Atkinson, was a sheriff, and my mother, Corin Bessie Newberry Atkinson, a homemaker, and I, the only child. As a young boy, Jack's grandfather, Ross, took him hunting, especially duck hunting, fishing, walking in the woods. Jack would later, later give his grandpa credit for his lifelong love of the outdoors and outdoor sports, a love he would pass on to his children. <clears throat> Excuse me. I want, quick note. I want Can scientists get to work and just eliminate viruses? Because they're pretty fucking annoying. Uh, Jack's family was poor, but he didn't seem to know it. I was referring to my head cold there or whatever this is. By the way, you're like, what are you talking about? Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Jack's family was poor, but he didn't seem to know it. Uh, though the stock market crash had occurred just two months after he was born, sending millions of Americans out of work and foreclosing on their homes. Since basically everyone in Jewett was poor and had been since before the de depression, life seemed there, you know, pretty much the same as ever. Jack's family got creative when it came to making sure everyone had what they needed, at least sort of had what they needed. We couldn't even afford a football or a baseball to throw around, and there were very few kids around who owned one. So what do we do? Fritz would say. Granddaddy Ross and I made a football out of a bunch of rags that we tied together with string, and we played baseball with an old broomstick and rocks. A lot of his neighbors made a little extra cash making moonshine and whiskey. Since Jack's dad was local sheriff, one of Jack's earliest memories was being a seven-year-old riding around with his dad in a sheriff's car while he hunted down those moonshiners. Being sheriff in Jewett was a pretty dangerous job at the time. Benjamin would have moonshiners, you know, fire at him numerous times, but he never let that make him quit. Maybe he just really loved being sheriff or maybe knew that if he lost that job, might not ever be another one. There's good waiting for him. Most of the country was out of work, after all. Little Jack was with his dad a few times when people uh, he was looking to arrest would fire on the squad car and Benjamin didn't seem overly concerned with putting his son in danger. Maybe he wanted to toughen Jack up. Even for an employed man, times were rough and Jack and his family lived in the, in the county or out in the country, excuse me, in a small frame house without running water. To find the outhouse at night, Jack would follow a string that was tied from the corner of the house to the outhouse, which I guess was about 200 feet away. One time Jack moved the string to send his dad out into the woods as a prank. And then later that night, he said he got the worst spanking I ever had in my life. Sounds like it might've been worth it though. Pretty funny. According to a much later account by Fritz's son, Kevin, Benjamin was a, a, a pretty questionable dad in some ways. He would allegedly take little Jack into town and then arrange fights between him and other little boys. 
Fucking what? No other details about this are given. This sounds insane. Who are these other kids? Like, are their dads bringing them to the fights? Did Jewett have some kind of weird fucked up fight club where you didn't fight other dudes, you just brought your son to fight other sons? Should I have been doing this with my son, Kyler? Did I miss out on an incredible opportunity to toughen him up and have a lot of laughs? You know, enjoy watching him, I don't know, brawl with other little kids. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday at the McEwen Park Basketball Court in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. We have a bare-knuckle underage brawl for the ages. Defending champs Sammy Wilson and Bubba McAllister will be representing the best of the local school system's third grade has to offer. While neither man is over the age of nine or weighs more than 80 pounds, they have dozens of fights beneath their belts and more scars on their knuckles than the average full-grown adults. They'll be facing any and all challenges under the age of 10. Fathers, bring your sons and have them ready to knock out what few baby teeth Sammy and Bubba have left. I didn't time that right, but I didn't want to cut any of that. <laughs> uh, Jack was apparently often beaten badly in these fights. He'd come up, uh, you know, with bloody noses, bloody mouth, black eyes. He got knocked down by bigger fighters all the time, but I guess he never got knocked out. And with his dad cheering him on. Why the fuck is his dad cheering him on? These little weird fights. Uh, he always got back up. He learned to fight, learned to be fearless. For his dad, being a badass brawler was what you needed to be if you wanted to be a real man, a man's man. And Jack would adopt this mindset. Being a man's man would be important to Jack both in his early life and when he became Fritz von Erich, wrestler and father. As soon as he may have passed this don't show weakness mentality down to his sons. The Atkinsons moved from Jewett to Dallas when Jack was nine. When he was 12, granddaddy Ross died. In Dallas, Jack attended Crozier Tech High School where he trained in discus throwing and shot putting under a coach affectionately known as Uncle Rosie. That's a, that's a creepy name for a coach. Not sure I want my kids getting uh, one-on-one private practices, you know, in with uh, Uncle Rosie. Well, he was starting to throw the shot put. World War II was in full swing. When he graduated high school, the war had just come to an end. New era of prosperity and optimism was beginning in America. Jack had several scholarship offers come his way. Uh, thinking he was destined for a career in professional sports, just not, not knowing that it was not going to be football. Jack accepted an athletic scholarship to play football at Southern Methodist University in Dallas. And in doing so, interestingly, he turned down a music scholarship to the University of Texas at Austin. Would you believe it if I told you he was an accomplished clarinet player? Photos in his yearbook would show him as just that, Jack beaming proudly with his clarinet. As an older man, he would never miss a Dallas classical music concert when he was home. I found that pretty funny. I just, uh, I love the big, tough brawler who also likes the, the sweet, sweet sounds of a clarinet. I've never been real big on clarinets. But honestly, trying to find a video uh, showing how bad clarinets sounded, uh, I came across a lot of videos of people fucking killing it on a clarinet. Especially with jazz. Check out this Boston area high schooler, Emma Lacey, murdering some Duke Ellington just this last year. I mean, it's pretty awesome. She's into it too. She's fucking dancing around. Got all the crazy facial expressions. Good on you, Emma Lacey. Uh, also kills it with a saxophone. I got lost in a fucking wormhole watching Emma Lacey classical music videos. Or not, whatever. Jazz videos. You know what I'm talking about. Pretty awesome. <clears throat> 1947. The six foot four inch clarinet loving athlete 
who already weighed over 200 pounds, became a starter on the freshman football team at SMU, playing on the offensive line. He'd also compete for the track and field team and actually set the national freshman discus record. 1949, Jack played in a game in which SMU beat Notre Dame 27-20 to in the closing minutes of the SMU program's biggest win. And Fritz would later say it was the greatest game I ever played in or saw. Later that year, the college kid developed another extracurricular interest, girls. Well, one girl. Her name was Doris Juanita Smith, a 17-year-old Woodrow Wilson High School student who planned to attend SMU after graduation. Shortly after they met, they decided to get married. Clearly, they had some chemistry. Just one problem. SMU coach Maddie Bell had a rule strictly forbidding married football players from being able to play on his team. So what would they do? Well, knowing he was risking his football career, which was at this point, you know, his life's focus, Jack tied the knot with Doris in secret on June 23rd, 1950. They wanted to get fucking if they weren't already fucking. No time to waste. And they didn't want to risk the scandal of Doris, you know, being an unwed mother, I'm guessing. They hoped to keep the marriage a secret. So they went to Denton, Texas with Doris's mother, brother, sister, the only witnesses. Then they rented a small cabin on the Texas side of Lake uh, uh, Texhoma for a brief honeymoon. As they returned to Dallas, they stopped at a gas station where Doris bought a newspaper and the headline read, Atkinson loses scholarship at SMU. Slow news day, I guess. And the headline was true. Jack figured somebody recognized his name on the marriage certificate, called Coach Bell, who maintained that rules were rules. And whoever called him, what an asshole. Uh, Bell did, however, arrange for Jack to try out for a spot on Coach Bear Bryant's University of Kentucky football team, which did allow married players. What a stupid rule. Bell obviously thought you could be married and play football, just not for him. What was he worried about? Too much fucking and sucking? Takes your mind off football? Did he have a no jerk-off rule too? Right? You get caught whacking, you get sent packing. What would that dipshit think of all the married NFL players who fucking kill it decade after decade? Man, people in their dumb needless rules. Uh, off to Kentucky, Jack and Doris went to check out the university. Jack tried out, was accepted, but he said that his and Doris's family were all in Texas and they'd have to talk it over. They returned to Texas. Jack visited Corpus Christi to check out a university there, too. Uh, what impressed him most about the area was the wildlife. A lot of ducks, geese, and fish. And he loved Texas. Didn't really want to leave his home state. So Jack now decides that he will attend the University of Corpus Christi. In early 1952, the couple loads up their belongings into their decrepit 1941 Mercury and head to Corpus Christi to live on the Gulf Coast, about a three-and-a-half-hour drive from Houston. There, they both enroll as students at the university, live in an old army barracks on campus, where they slept on a mattress on the floor. And Fritz later explained, we were so much in love that we didn't care as long as we were together. But there was a no kissing or dancing on campus rule that began to annoy Jack. So Jack eventually said, fuck it and dropped out. No kissing or dancing on campus for anyone, not even married couples. Why have there always been so many fun hating cunts in the world, right? At the sight of two people kissing, or one or more people dancing upsets you so much that you want to ban it from where you work or study. Please do the rest of the world a favor and just walk your joy-hating ass out in front of a bus or something. So stupid. Might as well have a no smiling on campus. No fun. Do not appear to be joyful for any fucking second. We're here to suffer. Uh, he and Doris were already working two jobs. Uh, Doris now wanted a place of their own when they leave school. Jack convinces one of his friends to take out a, a loan available to veterans to build him a house, which he did. And that is quite the friend. 
I have some good friends, but I'm not going to sign off on a home loan. My name for any of them. When the sawdust sawdust cleared, Jack and Doris owned a cute little two-bedroom, one-bathroom home. They had a little retriever named Rebel, a mutt named Punkin, uh, the door is found by the side of the road, and that's adorable. Bojangles, very pleased. Jack found work as a debt collector, making a deal with the old man who owned the business that he would collect from the most difficult cases if he could have half the payout. Jack knew he was imposing, right? He was six foot four now, for, or, you know, still six foot four, now former football player who was getting closer to 220 pounds of muscle, and he'd been fighting ever since he was a little kid, right? When his dad would fucking take him to fights, uh, you know, few would turn him down when he asked for money. To get his money, a simple threat of an ass whooping would usually work. If it didn't work, he would tell the person that he was the last chance they were going to have to make things right before the boys from New York came to pay them a visit. And the threat of a mafia execution would usually do the trick if an ass whooping wouldn't. Jack's new business, as you can imagine, didn't make him a lot of new friends. And a couple times he and Doris would return home from a night out in the town, excuse me, to find their windows broken out and their house graffitied. Hazard of the trade. Frightened, Doris convinced Jack to quit, which he did, now becoming a fireman with a 24-hour on, 24-hour off schedule, which he, uh, you know, both of them liked a lot more. His new job also gave him more time to hunt and fish, which he also loved. Two made a combined annual salary of about six grand, good money in those days, equivalent to about $80,000 a year now, but I think went probably quite a bit farther than $80,000, wouldn't I? Now, uh, sources don't mention what job Doris actually had at that time. But shortly after becoming a freshman, Jack heard rumors that a professional football franchise was coming to Texas. Once again, Jack decides to switch careers, convincing Doris to quit her job, load the old Mercury up, move to Dallas, where Doris would stay with her mom while Jack would chase his dreams. Doris was also pregnant now with her first child. Jack took off to Kerrville, Texas, where tryouts were being held, a town about an hour from both San Antonio and Austin. About 25,000 people lived there, about 8,000 lived there at the time. Eager to provide for Doris and future baby, Jack did all he could to make the team. And he did. But then a knee injury sidelined him after he appeared in just a few exhibition games. And then uh, the team, the Dallas Texans, went broke. They'd play only one full season in the NFL before folding. No relation to the Houston Texans franchise, by the way. Jack now headed to Dallas, looked for uh, yet another job, and he would find it, the job that would change his life. Carl Doc Seropoulos and veteran wrestler Ed Strangler Lewis, a.k.a. Robert H. Friedrich, uh, were scouting for professional wrestling talent. Seropolis held the Southwestern Championship in Texas during the 1930s, was now a leading promoter in Amarillo, as well as the former president of the National Wrestling Alliance. Lewis was a four-time, and that National Wrestling Alliance was around for a long time, and, you know, like a kind of with these regional promotions, it would try to get them to play along with one another and, you know, uh, decide on, you know, who gets to be the champion, what are the rules, you know, have uh, one belt as opposed to a hun- whole bunch of belts and stuff. Lewis, four-time world wrestling champion, and both knew that Jack, who was about 230 pounds, and again, six foot four, very athletic, would make a great wrestler. He was also known in parts of Texas for being a football player, which meant he might be able to help sell some tickets, and promoter Ed McLemore agreed to give him a shot. While Jack is just barely beginning his career in wrestling, September 21st, 1952, Doris gives birth to their first child, a son they named Jack Barton Atkinson Jr., They'd hoped to have two children, a little boy named Jack and a little girl named Jill. Obviously, that would not happen. Also pretty adorable. Now with a wife and a baby, Jack gets more serious about wrestling, taking some training lessons in Dallas. But then during the workout, he gets thrown from the ring at the Dallas Sportatorium, a venue that will later become legendary for hosting wrestling matches, and he'll break his shoulder. 
They'll recover from the injury, proceed to run up a string of 13 straight losses in Texas. Got to pay your dues. You're starting off in these fixed matches. And then he'll beat George Penchiff for his first victory. While driving across Texas to one of his matches, Jack decides to adopt a ring name. He was inspired by wrestlers of the day like Hard-Boiled Haggerty, Strangler Lewis, Haystacks Calhoun, Crusher, Lasowski, and more. Looks like Haystacks could have spent a bit more time on his nickname. It's not quite as intimidating. You know, a strangler or crusher. I don't think he got too much shit for it, though. <laughs> At least not to his face. He was 6'4", just uh, like Jack, but he was a he weighed a tick over 600 pounds and strong as a fucking bull. He got his nickname during a televised promotion for a match he was in where he tossed full bales of hay way up into a barn's uh, hayloft. Uh, a typical rectangular hay bale weighs anywhere from 100 to 140 pounds, and Homeboy was just launching these about 20 feet up in the air. I worked for a neighbor stacking bales of hay for one day when I was either a junior or senior in high school. Turns out that's not a great job for uh, somebody who's you know not huge and also has a, a healthy case of hay fever. My eyes almost swelled shut uh, from an allergic reaction and my arms covered in itchy welts. And those things were fucking way heavier than they look. I was not going to be throwing even one of them around like Haystacks Calhoun. So uh, I'm, I'm into his nickname now. Apologies, Haystacks. Uh, Jack would eventually choose the name of Fritz Von Erich but not for a few more years. Fritz was the name of a close family friend. Von Erich was Jack's grandmother's maiden name. It fit the bill. German last name for a big, blonde-haired, blue-eyed guy. Since his main job as a newbie was to make more established wrestlers look good by convincingly losing, the name would also, you know, provide promoters with the patriotic narrative of defeating the Nazis. Because he wasn't getting paid much initially and he wasn't getting paid at all whenever he was injured, he also became a bookkeeper for a promoter. And learn the business of wrestling, uh, you know, as a way to make some extra cash. And that new side job would pay off big time down the road. 1953, Doris and Jack Jr. moved to nearby Fort Worth. Fritz still wrestling, but he keeps getting injured. And Doris has to take occasional jobs to supplement their income. Fritz, meanwhile, decides he needs more training. And he moves to Boston for three months by himself to attend the Santos Professional Wrestling School. We were as poor as church mice, Fritz would later recall. I was eating Boston beans for breakfast, lunch, and dinner because I could buy them for 29 cents a plate. I tried to send Doris all the money I could, but there wasn't much. So tough times for the young couple. Kudos to Doris for being so supportive when it had to have seemed at times like this was all for nothing. When he started wrestling again, Fritz, let's just call him Fritz now, only getting paid $3 a match. He would often spend more on gas getting to the match than he'd be paid for the match itself. And that reminds me of paying dues in the early years of stand-up. Still to this day, when you go to a comedy club, if the feature or the, the middle act is not a local comic, there's a good chance they have spent more money traveling to get to the gig than they'll actually make for doing the gig. When he was in Boston, Doris moved into a small duplex on Hall Street next to her mother. She would eat peanut butter every day and sometimes go without when there wasn't enough for her and little Jack to eat. I mean, things are fucking times are tough. Things are tight. Making things worse, Doris also suffered a miscarriage around this time. After months in Boston, Fritz finally saves enough money to move to Des Moines, Iowa, where promoters are waiting to put him on a better paying circuit. His family will join him there, and the first night they get there, Fritz makes enough money to take the whole family out to town for a nice dinner. But it wasn't all glamour. The apartment they rented was pretty shitty. And a prostitute, uh, she lived next door and would entertain men by the hour, uh, you know, long into the evenings. Another neighbor was a peeping Tom. 
a guy who I imagine had to hide from Fritz rather than be caught and beat half to death by him. Fritz was home. Uh, from his home base, Fritz would wrestle in Iowa, Minnesota, and Michigan, logging all the miles by car. Currently resting as a hero or a babyface still, the good guy. It was uh, what his new promoter wanted out of him. And he was building himself at this time as a guy coming from Hollywood, California, a place he'd never even been to. In one match, he would lose to Hans Schmidt, real name Guy LaRose, who portrayed a villainous German Nazi. Fritz would be inspired by this later. They would even join up and form a successful villain tag team. But the time, Fritz still fighting, dime a dozen matches, suffering injuries, trying to provide for the family. Then a back injury leads him to miss eight weeks of action and just as many paychecks. When he recovered, he was asked to wrestle in Canada. So Doris and Jack come with him. She finds she likes it better up there. The motels are cleaner, snow, bright and pure. In Calgary, Fritz will work with Stu Hart, president of Stampede Wrestling. He will work out in Hart's basement, known as The Dungeon, because it was there that Hart would train would-be wrestlers with methods that would be considered sadistic by other industry standards. Uh, Hart had acquired the former Army Hospital Mansion in 1951, transferred its basement into his personal, or transformed its basement into his personal training center shortly thereafter, and it would train everybody from strongmen to football players. Stu would train major wrestling names like superstar Billy Graham, the Iron Sheik, other wrestlers of note who would train there in later years, uh, Chris Jericho, Chris Benoit, Mark Henry, Abdullah the Butcher, Rowdy Roddy Piper, Junkyard Dog, Jim the Anvil Nightheart. Chris Benoit once said, going to the Hart family for training was kind of like if you're, a, uh, if you're a very religious person going to the Vatican. Following his training with Stu, Fritz would go on to wrestle in Manitoba, Winnipeg, other Canadian cities, and somewhere along the way transform into the villain Fritz von Erich, Nazi war criminal. Fritz would wear a pair of marching boots. He began practicing the Nazi goose step, scoured World War II movies and archived footage for Nazi behaviors he could imitate. Took that shit seriously. June 1st, 1954, Fritz was elevated to semi-final event status against Iron Mike DiBiase, adoptive father of future pro wrestling star Ted DiBiase, a.k.a. the Million Dollar Man. I fucking love to watch the Million Dollar Man wrestle when I was a kid. Not clear who won the match, but Fritz would return to the Minneapolis Auditorium for the semi-final event to beat Tom Bradley. Here, Fritz would be, uh, uh, Fritz used what was becoming his key move at the time, an atomic drop or a rope drop, crashing down with his knee from the top rope to pin his opponent. Fritz would keep wrestling throughout the summer of 1954, finding a lot of success as the Nazi heel among American audiences, many of whom had lost, you know, members of their families fighting the Nazis. In late 1954, as hotel rates rose, Fritz now arranged to have a mobile home delivered to his family in Canada, and they parked on the Rocky Mountain foothills of some land owned by a promoter. So the family clearly just scraping by. Fritz is resting in Edmonton, Calgary, Saskatoon, Regina, elsewhere up north, sometimes resting by himself, sometimes as part of a tag team. His earliest nemesis would be Elio De Paolo, who immigrated from Italy to South America in 1949 before moving to North America and becoming a popular wrestler based in Buffalo, New York. There's actually a steakhouse just outside of Buffalo today called Elio De Paolo, uh, supposed to be one of the best restaurants in the country and uh, still ran by his family. Fritz's touring schedule this time was brutal. Matches all over Canada and the northern U.S., Sometimes uh, matches just a day apart. His first championship match would come May 6, 1955 in Calgary. He and Lou uh, Soberg would beat Sky High Lee and Earl McCready to win the Alberta Tag Team Championship. And his relentless touring continued. The more he toured, better he got. He's making a name for himself. He's a big guy who could successfully perform acrobatic maneuvers, usually reserved for smaller men. He was said to have some of the strongest legs in wrestling propelling him to the air. 
But he still needed a better, better signature move. Something uh, better than the atomic rope drop. Something that could be only performed by him. And that's when he thought of the Iron Claw. Came to him when he found himself in a match in Edmonton. With his opponent on top of him. Fritz on his back. The opponent's legs wrapped around Fritz with his head tucked under Fritz's chin. Fritz then placed his right hand around the opponent's head. Dug in with his fingernails, right? Applying pressure to the temples. The other man screamed his pain. As a bit of blood started to flow from his temples and falling to the ground, the crowd goes fucking crazy. And since Fritz knew about the Nazis' Iron Cross, he decided to call that move the Iron Claw. At least that's how he said he came up with it. Uh, Other accounts would say that the bleeding was planned, you know, long before the match. And that his new move was not spontaneous, but rather, you know, they'd been working it out in practice. I'm going to believe that account. No fucking way. That in this kind of wrestling, you just go off script and dig your fingernails into another dude's face so hard they start to genuinely scream in pain and, and bleed from their temples onto the mat. Uh, most of the bleeding you see in pro wrestling, by the way, comes from something called blading. I think it used to happen a lot more than it does now, just based on what I've remember as a kid and what I've seen in videos. It's when you, uh, they, they would take these razor blades or like a little part of a razor blade and that, you know, used to cut into the skin during a match and that blade would be hidden before the match within some strapping. Some of the fabric used to hold the mat in the place or in place. And then that blade would be secretly taken out you know, after the match has been going on for some time with a little cut to the head concealed by hair uh, and that, you know, the blood coming out of there would mix with all the sweat that's, you know, the guys are fucking sweating like crazy at that point in the match and it would look like a copious amount of just bleeding. You can find videos online with wrestlers like, uh, especially like the Nature Boy Ric Flair, right? Woo! Just uh, fucking so much bleeding and talking about how he did it, talking about how they would blade each other. It's fucking crazy how these guys would bleed so much, so much sometimes they would need to get stitches or staples in their head after matches to stop the bleeding. And at least Ric Flair didn't seem to think anything of it. I mean, there's pictures of him where it looks like he's dying. Uh, whatever's true origin, the Iron Claw made Fritz a superstar. Fritz would go on to use two kinds of the hold, sometimes applying it to his opponent's heads. Other times he'd grab their bellies. And it was the head hold that really took off, which makes sense. Uh, the belly grab uh, probably just looked like an aggressive form of tickling. A tickling finishing move, though. That would be very entertaining if done right. Ladies and gentlemen, now for the main event. Hulk Hogan faces off against Michael the Tickler Myers. <laughs> and they just have like a dude, just like Michael Myers from Halloween movies, come in and just tickle the shit out of him until he can't breathe. Passes out. I'm not going to lie, brother. The Hulkster was scared in that ring tonight. I couldn't breathe. It was fun at first, but then he just wouldn't quit. Right? To the power of Hulkamania, I will avenge his defeat, brother. But first, I'm going to have to get some therapy, brother. I think that shit really fucked my head up, brother. Might have some kind of tickled PTSD. I'm feeling real twitchy, brother. I'm afraid to be touched. The Hulkster might need to sleep alone for a while. You feel me, brother? Uh, interestingly, this finishing move would be incredibly easy to count in real life. Right? Like the, when the Iron Claw was applied to you, you know, in real life, you could have just like, just pushed his arm away. No one's grip is so strong that another man strong enough to be a f- professional wrestler, couldn't overpower, you know, somebody trying to squeeze your head with the full strength of your arm. But this is not about reality. It's about showbiz. That's how they do it in Calgary. Iron Claw made for some amazing optics. Now Fritz will be introduced as a wrestler from Berlin, Germany. He'd enter the ring, goose step several feet, grab his right wrist, twist it with his left hand and display the Iron Claw to the audience. He reportedly even had the uh, Iron Claw move and name patented. With his new move and increased showmanship, he gets invited to Toronto, the mecca of Canadian wrestling. There, he needed to play the part of a wrestling superstar. 
He needed a Cadillac, new suits, even though he wasn't making superstar money. It was time for some fake it till you make it. Now the Von Erichs pack up, head to Niagara Falls for some matches before Toronto. Fritz drops uh, or pops some uh, Dexedrin, prescription stimulate, stimulant, my God. Stay awake on the long drive to Toronto's Maple Leaf Gardens where he'll be wrestling. He'll first wrestle there December 1st, but December 29th will bring him the most success when Fritz and Carl Von Schober beat National Wrestling Association champion Whipper Billy Watson and Yukon Eric. Love these names. For the Canadian Open Tag Team Championship. Following the victory, Fritz and Doris loaded up the Cadillac, headed to Texas to see some family, returning to Niagara Falls for a January 6th wrestling match. He'll uh, keep performing in Canada until the summer. After that, when he uh, meets Walter Sieber in Minneapolis, who's impressed with the young man's look. Sieber wrestled as Waldo von Sieber, uh, or Baron von Sieber, an evil German. Uh, Fritz suggests that Waldo become, you know, Fritz's younger brother from Berlin, Waldo von Erich. And they'll become a successful duo before Fritz gets another offer from a promoter in Illinois, which sets him up work in the St. Louis territory, owned by promoter Sam Mucknick, one of the most lucrative, popular wrestling territories in the country at that time. Uh, Once again, the family packs up and moves, just fucking bouncing around like they're in the circus. February 1st, 1957, Fritz makes his St. Louis debut, defeating Bill Melby. Melby was the NWA Texas champion and co-holder of the NWA Tag Team Championship belt. Fritz would continue his St. Louis campaign throughout the spring. Then May 15th, 1957, Doris would give birth to the family's second son, Kevin Ross Atkinson in Belleville, Illinois. Family now moves back to Niagara Falls. So much bouncing around, not real glamorous right now. There, Fritz will mostly defeat opponent after opponent, sometimes drawing, sometimes lose by disqualification, but always winning the crowd's attention. Then they return to St. Louis again. By August, Fritz is ready for a vacation, so after losing a decision in St. Louis to Edward Carpentier, he takes his family once again to Niagara Falls, but this time for a vacation, a five-day fishing trip, at least Fritz's idea of a vacation. Then they return to Toronto, September, to fight future NWA world champion Pat O'Connor. Following that win, Fritz thought he'd struck gold. We get an offer from Morris Sigal to wrestle down in Texas. Immediately hires a truck to pull his mobile home to Houston for a thousand bucks, uh, but then Sigel was hospitalized for a heart attack uh, two days after making the offer. With no contacts, bills on the line, the Von Erichs now move their mobile home to a trailer park in Minneapolis. Um, and for, <laughs> He'll continue wrestling up north, mostly in Toronto and Buffalo, beating Pat O'Connor and Whipper Billy Watson with Gene Kaniski. Halloween, 1957. Dallas, April 4th, 1958. Fritz wins the Texas Brass Knucks Championship from Billy Curry, ruffian who played football for the Chicago Bears. He'll then fight again in Dallas, April 18th, against Pepper Gomez. Then it's back to Winnipeg in the snowy north. Before he makes it to Canada, the last sudden and unexpected death hits the family. Or the first, excuse me, not last, first. Spring of 1958, while Fritz was out wrestling, Doris's 14-year-old younger brother, David, reported to his mom that he'd been experiencing bad headaches. There was now a tingling sensation on one side of his face, and he couldn't talk very well all of a sudden. This is all looking real bad. Goes to the doctor, undergoes a battery of tests. They diagnose him with a tumor that has covered the entire base of his brain. And then he passes away during surgery. I literally adored him, Doris will say. He was just perfect. And Doris, of course, has no idea this is the very beginning of the terrible family tragedy she'll have to endure. Meanwhile, Fritz is still out wrestling. Gotta pay the bills. Over the summer of 1958, he'll team up with Hans Hermann to win the NWA World Tag Team Championship. Also that summer... July 22nd, 1958, Doris gives birth to another baby boy. They named their third son David, after Doris's brother. 
after the birth. Uh, Fritz will then head to North Carolina. And uh, yeah, Fritz will then head to North Carolina. I think this, I don't know why I just said uh, third. It's um, second. Well, I guess there was the miscarriage, but yeah, it's Jack and then David. So second son. Uh, after the birth, Fritz will then head to North Carolina for a four-month wrestling stint there. On September 8th, he'll beat Gory Guerrero, real name Salvador, one of Mexico's greatest wrestlers at that time. His sons, Chavo, Eddie, Hector, and Mondo, will also go on to become wrestlers, just like the Von Eric boys. Actually, Eddie Guerrero, Latino Heat, will become one of the most famous wrestlers in the world in the early 2000s, wrestling for WWE SmackDown. The Latino Heat will beat Brock Lesnar to take the championship. Back to 1958, October 13th in Charlotte, Fritz and Waldo Von Erich will beat George Becker and Mike Clancy to win the NWA Southern States Tag Team Championship. So many fucking championships. Feels like everybody had a belt. Uh, when Fritz returns to Dallas in November of 1958, he and Doris now use their income tax return, just over $1,000, to return to uh, Niagara Falls. And now they live in Sunny Acres Trailer Park there. Crazy that he's doing really well now, right, compared to other restaurants of the day. He's fighting in arena matches sometimes. He's winning multiple championships. And they still need money for an income tax return to move a trailer into another trailer park. Fritz was now wondering if all of this was too much, right? He thought about buying a bait and tackle shop down in Texas. Just go back home, spend more time with the family, really making him rethink everything. His wife, Doris, also undergoing a serious health scare when she uh, has an operation to remove a possibly cancerous tumor for her, from her neck. Right? Makes him think of, their brother, of her brother, David. Seems like her time on earth might uh, not be long now. Every moment moment feels precious. Fortunately, the tumor is benign, and for the time being, Fritz, Fritz keeps wrestling, but with the idea that he should be looking for a way out. Then, tragedy strikes again. Before we go over the first tragedy that will be associated with the curse of the Von Erichs, time for our second of two mid-show sponsor breaks. If you'd like to avoid these interruptions, you can sign up on Patreon and get the entire Time Suck catalog ad-free. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know what's one of the best things to bring with you wherever you go? Raycon's everyday earbuds. Raycon's offer amazing quality audio at half the price of other premium audio brands. Their tens of thousands of five-star reviews speak to that. Your Raycons can go with you everywhere so you can listen at any time. With eight hours of playtime and 32-hour battery life, you don't have to worry about whether they're up for the task. Even though I'm not currently touring, I still travel a fair amount. And I love how small the case is. So easy to throw them in my jacket pocket like I did when Lindsay and I took my grandma to New Orleans. I use them on the plane to help fall asleep to some Nathaniel Rateliff and then Enola. Use them at the gym to get pumped up for a quick workout to some Chevelle. Perfect for both places. I was able to easily use noise isolation on the plane to block out flight noises and then switch to awareness mode at the gym so I'm not too lost in my own world and get in the way of others' workouts. Go to buyraycon.com slash timesuck today to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash timesuck. Buyraycon.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. 
Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations. Babbel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto pargo rojo frito. Y me gustaría un poco de huevo de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited-time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. Thanks to those of you who listened to those sponsors. I hope uh, if you heard a deal you liked, you used our codes and landing pages. Now for the first curse-associated tragedy. On March 7th, 1959, little six-year-old Jack Jr., uh, the uh, oldest Von Erich boy, returning home from a plane at a friend's house. A man who had been working out on the park's electrical system had left his skinned hot wire leaning up against the Von Erich's mobile home like a fucking idiot. And when little Jack brushed up against this wire, he is knocked unconscious, uh, you know, from the shock, falls down, ends up face first in a puddle of melting snow and drowns. Truly a freak accident. And now Doris has lost her baby brother to a brain tumor and her firstborn has drowned right outside her trailer. While I'm guessing, sources don't say, but I'm guessing she was probably inside when it happened. Even though she couldn't have known what have happened, you know, what had happened or what was going to happen. I mean, the guilt of the what ifs. I would think would just eat you alive in moments. When Fritz gets back home, uh, he's traveling from Cleveland. It's not like anyone could call him right after it happened in the days before cell phones. He sees flashing lights in a crowd. Before he even gets out of the car, his friend tag team partner, Gene Kaniski jumps into the passenger side and gently breaks the terrible news. Fritz was, as you can imagine, fucking devastated. His firstborn son is dead. He was so overcome with emotion, he punched out his driver's side window. I wanted to die. Fritz would later say, I literally wanted to die. I felt that way for weeks. And this sadly would be just the very beginning of him grieving the loss of a child. Within days, he'd be back at it, out wrestling. They needed the money, still had contracted fights on the books. A couple weeks later, as he's driving back from near Buffalo, Fritz would claim to have a religious experience. As he crossed the peace bridge between Canada and the U.S. at Niagara Falls, he started to pray that his remaining children would get back to Texas and get to have a normal home life. His heart was no longer in wrestling. He was uh, sick of being on the road, away from his family. But first, until he could figure out another way to pay the bills, there was more wrestling to be done. Fritz now became more vicious than ever against opponents, using the atomic drop, the iron claw at any point. Sometimes he maybe did go off uh, script a bit, but the promoters didn't punish him because the fans loved it. Or maybe he didn't really go off script. I mean, it's so hard to differentiate fact from dramatic storyline with wrestling. He'll be chosen villain of the year in Ring Magazine's poll for 1959. The report noted the designation of on Eric was made because of his record against the biggest and the greatest in the business. His victories over Yukon, Eric, Roy McCarty, mighty Atlas and riotous bouts with world champion, Pat O'Connor and Ed Miller have stamped him as one of the frontline contenders for the world heavyweight championship. The writer claimed that Fritz was the toughest wrestler in the East adding when Fritz is in action, there is never a dull moment and he doesn't rest until victory is within reach. But he was also pegged by some as being potentially too violent. A Buffalo publication featured the following. As a master of every dangerous wrestling hold, as well as the fastest and definitely the most fissions, superweight, heavyweight, or super heavyweight in wrestling. I don't know why they're, I don't understand their use of the word fissions there, but that's what it says. Uh, Fritz is responsible 
or mo- for more serious ring injuries to his opponents than any other grappler in modern wrestling history. That article would also quote one of Fritz's opponents, Lord Athel Layton, saying, Von Erich is a crippler, should be barred from the ring for life. He will gladly go so far as to cause serious injury to his opponent just to be declared the winner. Now, was that true? Or just uh, more wrestling showbiz? Probably some showbiz. In the early 60s, Fritz will keep wrestling. He must have loved, uh, still loved it, you know, at least a little. Also, the money's getting better, good enough to make him reconsider plans of raising the family more traditionally in Texas. In the early 60s, he'll join up with other professional wrestlers, Billy Red Lions, Elio DePaolo, and Dick Byer, a.k.a. The Destroyer, a.k.a. Dr. X. Finally, a dick shows up again. Feels like we've had a bit of a dick drought here. Uh, Anyway, the three of these guys joined forces to buy ownership of a Rochester, New York wrestling promotion from Pedro Martinez. And this will give Fritz his first taste of running a promotion, what was to become his main focus for the rest of his professional life soon. February 3rd, 1960. Doris gives birth to another boy. Uh, this, uh, the fourth Von Erich son whom they named Carrie. So sorry, when I said a uh, second earlier, uh, there's, uh, there has already been four. There's Jack, uh, Kevin, David, and Carrie. Carrie born premature, almost died. Fritz returned from the, uh, for support, uh, but quickly had to leave again. Couldn't afford to miss matches. Fritz, uh, sorry, the, these little pauses here, this cold. Also, also fun uh, side effect of this virus, crazy brain fog, which is uh, great. <laughs> for doing this. Uh, Fritz will work away from home most of the rest of the year, returning to St. Louis to be on the televised Wrestling at the Chase on December 24th, 1960, where he'll defeat Frank Townsend. He'll lose on February 3rd to Duke Kimaka in a judo jacket match. Duke was one of Fritz's regular nemesis. Nemeses. Uh, he was advertised as a World War II villain, in this case, a Japanese soldier. Judo jacket match, just a gimmick where both men would wear martial arts gi and wrestle like normal. Uh, December 1st, 1961, Fritz defeats the so-called Missing Link. That's a good wrestling name. Uh, to become Detroit's U.S. champion. Around this time, his uh, mythos expands and his personal history is rewritten to fit his character. Now it says, in 1945, Germany, uh, promotional materials, uh, as they said, 14-year-old Fritz was lifting weights with friends on an otherwise deserted playground. Just out on a fucking playground, you know, lifting weights, as kids do. <laughs> when a battalion of Nazi troops walked by. Fritz, he catches the attention of the commander. The commander waves him over. The commander, seeing Fritz's uh, size, uh, thinks he's a deserter. But then Fritz says, no, he he tried to join the army, but he was too young. They turned him away because of his age. Age. Now the commander says, you know, you're a liar. You know, basically there's no fucking way that that somebody as strong and as big as you could be so young and just swings uh, a bat at the boy's face, as one does. But then Fritz grabs the bat Right? And fucking rips it out of his hand, tosses it aside, and then body slams and pins this Nazi commander to the ground. The commander then orders his troops to arrest Fritz, but nobody moves. They're scared. This 14-year-old kid has him shaking in their fucking Nazi boots. Uh, even though, you know, they would have all had guns. But it doesn't even matter. After a few tense moments in the standoff, a sergeant moves to arrest the boy, and then Fritz, yeah, 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 fucking body slams that motherfucker. And then Fritz just runs off with blazing speed. Nobody shoots at him. He runs into a nearby building where as luck would have it, you know who's inside? A wrestling promoter. (laughs) I love how far-fetched these stories are. And that guy tells him, he's like, you know what? You're so strong and good at kicking out yet. You should be a wrestler. And then young Fritz tells that dude, already was planning on it, dude. When the war's over, I'm going to head to America and kick the toughest Yankee ass I can find. Actually, the promotional materials uh, would quote him as saying, I'm going to do my best to wreck America. One man 
at a time. I'm coming for you, brother. I'm coming for all of America. You'll be red, white, and blue from all the blood loss and bruises. The Fritzinator will be putting on your ass, brother. This article reported that Fritz uh, now flew his own Cessna 170 airplane around the country from match to match. And that he'd never, ever been nice to a single girl. <laughs> of course, it's all nonsense, except for the part about the plane. Uh, he had his pilot's license and he actually was flying himself uh, to matches, which is pretty badass. I love that they added the girl stuff. And another thing, this Nazi America hating piece of shit is consistently rude to girls. Boo! 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 <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I love the silly small crowd booing button. Uh, a little hiss in there. April 14th, 1962, Fritz now beats George, uh, Gorgeous George, a.k.a. George Wagner. Gorgeous George created the greatest heel attraction of the 1940s and 50s, uh, one that continues to be copied in some form to this day. He was the first wrestler to grow out his hair long and dye it blonde, a visual that implied at the time he was either gay or a sissy, right according to uh, the conventions of the day, and to be either gay or a sissy, unacceptable to wrestling crowds of that time. He would strut around with pride, had a valet spray the ring with perfume before he entered, and would hand out Georgie pins to angry fans. I love it. Poor George was actually legitimately ill when he wrestled Fritz in 1962. Uh, sadly, he died about 18 months later. For the next several months, Fritz will play in San Francisco, Kansas City, Cincinnati, Fort Wayne, Denver, Amarillo, and more. In Amarillo, he'll win the North American Heavyweight Championship belt. He'll go on to win the Southwest Tag Team Championship with Gene Kaninsky. Kaniski, as well as the Omaha World Championship. In August of 1962, Boxing Illustrated, Wrestling News, ran an article entitled The Violent World of Fritz Von Erich. And Fritz will be quoted, I am the only man in the world who can execute the Iron Claw properly. Sure, a lot of other guys try it, but they soon give it up as a bad job because they just haven't got enough strength in their fingers. Me? I can crush a baseball in my bare hand. He, he could definitely not do that. That's, that's a lie. But that's, that's some badass shit to say. By the summer of 1962, Fritz was back in Texas, hopefully to stay. He was still considering buying a bait and tackle shop, supposedly. But when promoters learned that he was in town, invitations would roll in for him to wrestle. In September in Lubbock, he won the North American Heavyweight Championship for the second time. A few weeks later, Texas State Athletic Commissioner vacated it, though. Because Fritz and his opponent, Dory Funk, had an impromptu rematch in the parking lot that led to a car window being broken. Right? Drama. Drama that sells tickets. October 4th, 1962, Fritz will beat Mr. Clean. Seriously, the character was a ripoff of the TV commercial character, Mr. Clean, who wore white clothing, sported a bald head, and hawked a Mr. Clean laundry detergent. The Mr. Clean of wrestling uh, wanted to eliminate dirty wrestlers and clean up the sport. Nice. November, Fritz would lose to Cowboy Bob Ellis when Fritz uh, refused to break the Iron Claw after Cowboy Bob already submitted Endings like that would give the hero the win, but allow the villain to claim he'd actually won good for future bookings. April 5th, 1963, Fritz repeats that move when he returns to St. Louis to force a concession from Johnny Valentine and then is disqualified for refusing to break the hold after the bell. June of 1963, he beats Lord Athel Layton to win the NWA Detroit and Chicago version of the U.S. Championship for another a second time. And then he'll repeat that in October of 1963. He'll be placed at number 12 in the World Wrestling Ratings in July of 1963 in the issue of Ring Wrestling. 
He is rated number seven in the world by Boxing Illustrated Wrestling News that same month. He'll give quotes to magazines, debate his opponents, make rivalries, sometimes with men he worked with on a, on a tag team, uh, make it seem more intense, you know, these rivalries than they actually were. Say stuff like, let those bums come to me if they want to crack at my title. I like this kind of carrying on. They take the lumps and I take the money. Well said, brother. They take the lumps and I take the dumps. Wait, nah, that's not how I wanted it to come out. It's better the way you said it, brother. Uh, Fritz pulling off other gimmicks as well. According to the December 1963 issue of Wrestling Review, Fritz had insured his right hand for more than $1 million with Lloyds of London. His right hand, of course, being the Iron Claw. He'll claim to have studied judo in Tokyo now. Said he hadn't been pinned in two years. Both of those bald-faced lies. After one of his promotional ploys occurs uh, during St. Louis interviews, in which he pokes his finger at the cameraman, who is essentially telling him to wrap up and growl, you don't tell me when it's time to wrap up, I'll tell you when it's time to wrap up. I'll pay the extra time out of my own pocket. You tell him, brother. Something true was that Fritz was expanding his business. He bought a 22-unit apartment building, two laundromats, and one of the largest service stations in Dallas around this time. Things are going pretty damn well. Thoughts of leaving the world of wrestling behind her. Gone. I can just stay home with the family making all that money. During the 1960s boom, he would buy up a great deal of land. He and Doris would make a whole bunch of investments that would make them rich. March 2nd, 1964, Doris gives birth to the Von Erich's fifth son, Mike. Shortly before Mike's arrival, Fritz bought a 15-acre home near Corinth, Texas, then purchased more land around it, eventually turning it into a 150-acre cattle ranch. My God. Uh, this was where the Von Erich sons would grow up and become the same kind of outdoorsy youth that Fritz was as a kid. We grew up alone, Kevin Von Erich would later say, just ourselves. I guess one of the first lessons we learned was that the only people you had to count on was your family. Growing up, that's extra sad about all this. You know, the tragedy that's, that's coming for them, they were a very tight-knit family. Growing up, the Von Erich boys would have the kind of charm country existence that people uh, often have in mind when they talk about the way life used to be. The kids would romp around through the woods, had eight Labrador retrievers, yes, eight dogs. They drank uh, apparently 32 gallons of milk a week. <laughs> One set fire to a field trying to kill one mouse. Uh, they covered local speed limit signs with mud so you couldn't read them. Just hijinks. I love it. I love doing stupid shit like that as a kid. Whenever the boys got too uh, out of hand, Fritz would be the disciplinarian. He would deal out quick, painful justice with a leather, leather strap. Uh, aggressive, I know, but also a pretty common way to punish kids back then. Fritz loved the hell out of his sons. He taught them how to hunt, how to ride dirt bikes, and of course, how to wrestle. So much wrestling. By the time Kevin was six in 1963, they had a wrestling ring set up behind the house. Fritz also told his sons to fight back if a bully was picking on him. He'd tell them, it'll hurt if you get your nose bloodied, but your self-respect will never go away. Kevin would later say that the fighting became a, a natural thing to do, such a natural thing to do for him and his brothers that they would go up to other boys their own age and politely ask them if they would like to fight. <laughs> he said, not because we were picking on them, but because we thought it was a natural thing to do. That's so funny to me. Asking other kids if they would like to throw hands, like just like the same way you would approach a kid and ask him if he wanted to play you know, basketball. Uh, excuse me, I was wondering if you would like to fight. Uh, and if your friend would also like to fight, my brother can join in and we can all brawl two on two. I think we'd have a delightful time. Uh, we can even agree to stop when someone yells mercy if that's what you'd prefer. The Von Eric boys would take turns walking around the house in their dad's huge size 14, uh, size 14 wrestling shoes. They'd watch his matches if they were close to home. He'd go to their peewee football games as often as touring allowed. They were all big football players too. 
Fritz would work out with his sons, lifting weights in the gym he had set up around the house. Told him that they should be in sports because sports was a good test for life. When Carrie became interested in the discus, Fritz, you know, former discus star, built a ring in the pasture, be- uh, ring in a pasture behind the house. He collected films of famous discus throwers and coached Carrie for up to two hours a day. And now around this time, Fritz starts to play down his Nazi story. He's thinking about becoming a good guy, babyface, though he can't abandon his popular villain persona quite yet. He does change the story about him slamming that Nazi commander at age 14, though. Says that uh, while he was born in Berlin, he actually was taken very quickly to the U.S., where he was raised. He also kind of walked back some of the viciousness, saying that he never tried to seriously injure opponents with the Iron Claw. April 1964 issue of Wrestling World rates Fritz amongst the best in the world. Ranks him as number one cont- the number one contender for Vern Gagne's AWA championship belt. And what happens next? Uh, well, again, toe the line between fact and fiction. Allegedly, while Fritz was doing very well for himself and his family as a pro wrestler, he was also still considering buying that bait and tackle shop. He claimed that he'd all but bought the property and loaded his family into a car to go uh, start a new life when he got a call from Ed McLemore, owner of a failing wrestling promotion that ran shows in Dallas, Fort Worth, and Houston. He reminded Fritz they had a good deal with Channel 4 to use airtime for promotion. If Fritz would sign a contract, crowds would increase, money would come rolling in, best talent would join him, and then Fritz could not only be the star, he could run the promotion. And Fritz decided, well, I guess, I guess the bait and tackle shop could wait. And he signed the contract and became a big-time promoter. That's a cool story, but probably not how it went down. Uh, Fritz was already familiar with McLemore. He'd, he'd wrestled in his territory for years. He probably knew the tides of wrestling were shifting. Uh, financial success depended more on whether one could do a good interview to entice a crowd to come out rather than wrestle good enough for the few who might happen to show up. Fritz, Fritz now continues to wrestle and also to work uh, you know, more and more on being a promoter. January 5th, 1965, Fritz defeats Pepper Gomez, becomes the first NWA Texas champion. Then in March, he beats NWA world champion Lou, uh, the- Lou Thess in a so-called Texas death match, setting up a potential rematch in the future. In June, Fritz and killer Carl Cox beat Eddie Graham and Sam Steamboat to claim the NWA Texas tag team title. Fritz is suddenly at the height of his popularity, especially in Texas. He's making about 75 grand a year from one estimate. Great money in those days, equivalent to about 700 grand a year today. Fritz poised to strike while the iron is hot. You know, keep it going. He uh, will name his promotion world-class championship wrestling. It'll eventually put Ed McLemore out of business, though McLemore was still in charge nominally. The world couldn't think that Fritz arranged his own matches. He'll win the Texas championship for the third time, January 11th, 1966. And at that point, Texas now definitively Fritz Von Erich territory. He's the top dog in Texas. Now they start to uh, draw major wrestlers to uh, the Dallas Sportatorium, new headquarters of world-class championship wrestling. Channel 11 starts televising Fritz's weekly matches in Fort Worth. Channel 39 showing the matches in Dallas. They became the highest rated shows for each station. Bad guys always seemed to win in Fort Worth. Then the good guys would get their revenge in Dallas. Initially, like most wrestling shows at the time, it was a two-camera shoot with one camera on a stationary wide shot, second camera on a dolly. But now Mickey Grant, one of the station's producers, switches to a multi-camera shoot featuring six camera operators, some using shoulder-mounted cams, uh, which were great to get close-ups of the in-ring action. Inspired by how promoter Don King was producing boxing events, Grant also starts putting microphones in the ring to pick up the sounds of the wrestlers striking one another, the reverberations from the ring. WCCW also begins uh, incorporating the relatively new feature of instant replay and that of slow motion technology. Their ability to replay portions of the match uh, would especially highlight the brutality of Texas wrestling 
particularly Fritz and his later and later his sons as well, notorious for not caring how hard they were hitting their opponents. Slow motion replays will show every bit of that impact. Star of these new shows is always Fritz, still a great villain. On the TV shows, he'll grab the microphone from the announcer, turn to the camera, threaten his opponents venomously. It was hypnotic to watch. His villainous ways so believable, sometimes some of the fans of his wrestling promotion company uh, would attack him. On one occasion, a fan started climbing over the top rope with a knife in hand as Fritz, the hated villain, wrestled. Fritz had to knock him down and then uh, fucking kick him out. On another occasion, a fan stabbed him in a leg uh, with a three-inch hat pin as he walked back to his dressing room. On another occasion, an old woman tried to beat him with her crutch. Fritz broke the woman's crutch, and then she picked up the pieces and fucking threw those at him. I love it. Wish I knew how old she was when she did that. I hope she was over 70, just full of piss and vinegar. Too bad they couldn't sign her to Fritz's promotion. Maybe she could have been the tickler. Granny grab hands or something. Fritz has the iron claw. Granny grab hands has fingers of steel. November 28th, 1966. Fritz seeks to expand his business again by signing with Nippon Promotion, a wrestling promotion in Japan, and makes his first appearance across the Pacific. Japan, a country where fans just as fanatical about pro wrestling as Americans, Canadians, and Mexicans were at the time. Thanks mostly to the late, great Ricky Dozen, a Korean-born Japanese wrestling superstar. He'd come from Korea to Japan to become a sumo wrestler, but quickly found success as an American-style professional wrestler instead. After his retirement from sumo wrestling in 1950, Ricky Dozen became a black marketer, worked with Americans to purchase belongings from U.S. soldiers departing Korea, and then would sell those to the Japanese. But then in 1951, decides to pivot to professional wrestling for a new promotion sponsored by a Honolulu businessman named Mo Lipton. After one month of training, Ricky Dozen made his professional wrestling debut at the Yogoku Memorial Hall in Tokyo, October 28, 1951, wrestling his opponent to a 10-minute time limit draw. But as an international breakout would be in matches against the Canadian Sharp Brothers in 1954, with his Western opponents portraying themselves as villains to cheering Japanese crowds. Then, in an interesting twist, Ricky Dozen, one of the first Japanese wrestlers to be cheered as a babyface, a good guy, in post-World War II America. He was popular in the States, but more popular in Japan, acquiring nightclubs there, hotels, condos, uh, one building of condominiums. He painted a distinctive R on the side of the building, you know, to represent his name. After his wrestling matches, he would often immediately go to Ricky Sports Palace, start drinking without cleaning up any wounds. He was known to joke with the bar staff at the place he owned, say stuff like work was awful today while being covered in blood, maybe from a large cut in his face from the match. Then December 8th, 1963, Ricky Dozen is stabbed once by Katsushi Murata, member of an important Yakuza organization. The Yakuza, like the Japanese mafia. Think uh, very similar to the uh, mafia in America. After an, after an altercation in a nightclub. And we should suck the Yakuza one of these days. Anyway, Ricky Dozen alleged that his gangs, this gangster, Murata, stepped on his shoe. He demands an apology. Murata refuses. The two begin to argue, which eventually leads to Ricky Dozen punching Murata in the face, knocks him against the wall. Then Ricky Dozen mounts Murata, continues to punch him down on the ground until Murata pulls out a knife, uh, stabbed Ricky Dozen once in the stomach with it. Both now immediately flee the scene. Ricky Dozen is taken to Sano Hospital where a doctor decrees the wound not to be too serious but advises that Ricky Dozen should have surgery and not eat and drink for a little while. Surgery is successful. He returns home but goes against the doctor's orders. Starts eating and drinking that very same day. He's supposed to wait, I don't know, 24, 48 hours or something. Sends his assistant to the store for sushi and sake. Due to drinking and eating way too much, he bursts his internal, internal stitches. Then has to have a second surgery. 
then develops uh, peritonitis and dies at approximately 9.50 p.m. December 15th, 1963, at the age of 39. One of so many young, strong dudes to needlessly die in this episode. Katsushi Murata, later found guilty of manslaughter in October of 64, serves eight years in prison, gets released in 1972. Once back out, Murata will visit the grave of Ricky Dozen every year on December 15th for the rest of his life to pay respects to the man he stabbed, the man who beat the shit out of him, and a man he greatly admired. He even called the sons of Ricky Dozen annually to apologize. In the years following his release, Murata will eventually become a very high-ranking Yakuza member before he dies April 9th, 2013 of natural causes. Just an interesting little side story there. Uh, back to 1966, three years after Ricky Dozen's death, was Japan ready for a new wrestling superstar? Fritz von Erich thought so. He'd perform in his first match December 1st, 1966, going to a 60-minute draw, 60 minutes, against the Nippon International Tag Team Champions Shohei Giant Baba and uh, Mishiyaki Toshimura, or Toshimura. Uh, he would go on to wrestle Giant for the World International Championship, but lose. Later on, however, Fritz will claim that he won. According to Fritz, I became an overnight success in Japan. A song was written about my iron claw in me. And the Japanese people even gave me a nickname, uh, Tetsu Nosumi, which means nails of iron. None of that was true. But wrestling fans in America didn't know that. Uh, this story helped establish the narrative that Fritz was an international superstar, which will help him sell more tickets back in Texas and also help establish Texas as the center of international wrestling. He'll return to Texas later that December, bolstering his villainous image further by attacking opponents before the bell. They're bloody as soon as the cameras start rolling. He'll regain the Texas Heavyweight Championship in January of 67 and with that, decide to pivot his image further away from Nazi, his Nazi origins. As in, he'll decide to disavow it completely. The February 1967 issue of Wrestling Review stated that Fritz's real name was Jack Atkinson and he was born in Jewett, Texas, not Berlin. Nazi image is now done with, but fans, they don't care for the name Jake Atkinson. So he quickly returns to Fritz von Erich. He also tells a new story about how he developed the Iron Claw. He says, I started using a hold I called the Domino Claw. This is all bullshit. It could put a man down all right, but it wasn't good enough to keep him there. To improve my hold, I continually exercised my hand, developing it through a series of weight workouts and even a trip to Tokyo where I perfected it in judo school. <laughs> Fritz went on to say that, I just picture, what a weird judo school. Now just keep focusing on squeezing your hand. Like all the other people are doing like throws, you know, using somebody's momentum to fucking flip them over on their back. And he's just in a corner, just like squeezing fruit and shit. More, squeeze it harder, Fritz. Uh, Fritz would say that once the hold is applied for 10 seconds, it's literally impossible to break out of. There's nothing you can do to fucking get out of his 10 second hold. Able to pivot his image, Fritz builds a recreation center for teenagers in Dallas now, raises money for some charitable projects, show he's a good guy. Fritz will leave for a second tour of Japan, May of 1967. There he'll lose again to Shohei, uh, Giant Baba, and Mishiaki Yashimura. He'll lose in uh, Hokkaido to Antonio uh, Inoki and Mishiaki Yoshimura. And then he'll lose again to the Giant in a failed bid to win the International Heavyweight Championship. Uh, Antonio Inoki, by the way, fucking huge wrestling star in asia uh he would headline two shows in north korea with rick flair in 1995 yes north korea and and the shows drew 165,000 fans to the first match 190,000 fans to the next one not that they probably had a lot of entertainment options in north korea but still biggest live attendance ever <clears throat> excuse me for uh professional wrestling he also fought an exhibition match in 1976 against muhammad ali some consider that match to be the first modern mma match 
you know, the match that would lead to the MMA. Ali was the heavyweight champion at the time. Uh, Inoki uh, would fight a variety of top athletes from different disciplines, trying to prove that pro wrestlers were real fighters. And he kicked Ali in the leg so many fucking times in that match that Ali would get two blood clots and have mobility problems for the rest of his boxing career. There are so many legends in this timeline. It's crazy. I could do an entire episode just on Antonio Inaki, whose birth name was Kanji. E- e- excuse me. Antonio Inoki, birth name Kanji Inoki. By the way, if Antonio didn't seem to, to fit Inoki. Back to Fritz. Cool that he uh, wrestled those legends. Speaks to how big he was. Perhaps figuring he would do better in the U.S., Fritz leaves Japan again, heads back to Dallas. There orchestrates the match that will turn him truly from heel to hero. July 7th, 1967, Fritz beats Brute Bernard. Published pre-match hype had Fritz stating, uh, this man is a disgrace to wrestling. I'm ashamed to say that he once held a title I now hold so proudly and one I took from him. I'm wrestling him not so much to give him a crack at the belt, but to prove that he never should have had it in the first place. Brute Bernard was a classic heel, which meant that Fritz, kind of teetering somewhere in the middle now, fell over into hero territory fighting him. He also now started to run into the ring to save other heroes who were being beat up illegally by other heels. In the October 1967 issue of The Wrestler, Fritz and Waldo Von Erich, they're back together for some matches, are rated the number one tag team in the world. This will be a high point in Fritz's career as a tag team wrestler. Just a few weeks later, he'll also win the Texas Brass Knucks Championship, beating Brute Bernard. Throughout the 1970s, Fritz will still wrestle, beating enemy after enemy, but he's getting older. He turns 41 in 1970 and realizes somebody soon is going to have to fill in for him on some of his big televised matches. Who? His sons. Let's take a look at the next generation of Von Erichs now. 1972, Kevin is 15, David is 14, Carrie is 12, Mike is 8, Chris is 3. Older boys already aiming to follow in their dad's footsteps. As Kevin will later say, I thought my dad was just great. And when I went to the matches and heard people booing him, it made me mad. And I wanted to go down there with my dad and help him fight all those people who didn't like him. Being a kid, it's hard to listen to people boo your, boo your dad. Soon, Fritz will have a proper weightlifting gym built on the property and professional wrestlers and weight trainers will swing by to coach the boys. Early on, I guess none of the boys actually liked it that much. They were more into football, but they worshiped their dad, wanted to make him happy and proud of him. Kerry will describe one day in which he was millimeters away from weightlifting accident and his dad saved the day. He said, one day I was squatting and lifting 300 pounds on the bar. I lost it. The weight was going back. As I was falling, my dad caught the weights in a curl position, uh, just curled the 300 pounds and put the weight back on the bar. Not only did he save the weights from coming down on top of me, but I couldn't believe he was that strong. That's fucking absurd. Fritz was a big dude, 6'4". He's around 260 pounds now. Apparently, he had arms as strong as a lot of guys' legs. The strict barbell curl record is currently 250 pounds. So there's no way Fritz was just like, you know, strict form using only biceps to lift that 300 pounds. Still, super impressive, no matter how it happened. That guy was an ox. Mama Doris, uh, she's doing her best to encourage the kids to get good grades. She's taking them to church on a regular basis. Uh, church, interestingly, a place Fritz is not going to at the time. In fact, he'll tell his boys that the devil didn't exist. And he'd tell them uh, even if the devil did, Fritz would beat his ass. <laughs> I love it. Uh, Fritz will later claim that he was just trying to make sure his boys didn't grow up continually afraid of eternal damnation like he was. Which I get. Uh, my dad, not even joking about him now. He's about to turn 70. He's still pretty pissed that he was brought up by his Pentecostal pastor father to think the rapture was going to happen any second. And uh, because, you know, like the rest of us, he wasn't perfect and free from sin, 
he lived in constant fear of doing something sinful, like maybe having a bad thought about his parents or a lustful thought about some girl he liked and then dying before he could ask God for forgiveness for that thought. And then he'd burn in hell forever. He was so worried about burning in hell forever, forever, literally had recurring nightmares about burning in hell throughout his childhood. Uh, only God around the Von Erich household was Fritz himself, at least in his boy's eyes. These kids loved their dad, practically worshiped him. And that's why they wanted to wrestle to make him happy, to be like him. Kevin would later say, dad never ever said we had to wrestle or that we even ought to. To be honest, we didn't even know if we'd like wrestling that much. I mean, wrestling was filled with these old out of shape men going from one small town to another looking miserable. But we all knew what was going to happen in the end. It was inevitable. We were going to go into wrestling because we wanted to be just like our dad. Around the mid-70s, a national economic uh, downturn does some damage to Fritz's business. And he starts thinking that he's moving too fast in his wrestling and business dealings. He realizes he's still spending too much time away from home. His body's hurting more from years of taking hits. What happens next depends, again, on who you believe, what you believe. According to Fritz, he'll say that he finally decided to attend a Baptist church service, realized he had to give his life over to the Lord who suddenly took away his health problems when he did. And for that, Fritz decided to dedicate his wrestling career and his family, which had become one and the same, to God. Others would see it differently. Uh, they would see it as in the mid-1970s, Fritz, who was in his 40s, knew that his time in the ring was limited, knew that to introduce his sons to the wrestling world, he would need a good narrative, a good angle, something way better than the Nazi mumbo-jumbo he came up with in the 40s. You know, the 50s more. Uh, what could play better in Texas than a Christian family that fought in the ring for justice and lived according to the teachings of Christ outside of the ring? Did Fritz truly give his life to God or did he know that the optics of saying that he did were great for business? I personally think it was a business move. He was not afraid to change the supposedly uh, true narrative of who he was personally to uh, sell more wrestling tickets. Making a big move for his family's future, Fritz is elected president of the National Wrestling Alliance, the most powerful pro wrestling organization in the world for decades at, on September 1st, 1975. And then he arranged for Gary Hart, the Jackal, to out him to fans by telling them that Fritz was really Jack Atkinson from Texas, not Fritz von Erich from Berlin. And Fritz was now seen as a hometown hero. An article in July of 1976, uh, that issue of The Wrestler, proclaimed the man they booed long ago is not the same man who wrestles today. Fritz himself is quoted as saying, I want to do as much good in the future as I did harm in the past. The only part of my career which I ever consider goes back only four or five years. The rest is ancient history. I only want forgotten. I have a lot to do, a lot of sins to erase. A lot of blood has been spilled because of me and I must avenge it. I've abused the sport's dignity for too long. It's time for me to be a leader in my quest of restoring that dignity. Is it being genuine there or is that just some uh, wrestling soap opera gibberish? Americans do love a redemption story. Now Fritz, he does still keep the name Fritz von Erich, uh, simply markets himself, you know, at least as a ring name, simply markets himself as a good guy with a bad face. Good guy tough enough to take on the worst elements in wrestling. Interestingly, Fritz will be voted out of the NWA presidency the following August, less than a year after taking that position, by other promoters who believe that Fritz doesn't give a shit about the sport, just his own constant self-promotion. Fritz didn't care. He'd already done what he needed to do. He changed the narrative, opened a way to bring his sons into the ring. After successful high school football, basketball, and track and field careers, Fritz's sons, Kevin, David, and Carrie, become the first three All-State athletes from Lake Dallas uh, High School. Uh, Carrie even sets a junior world discus record, and now the three brothers go on to college. And one by one, they'll leave college to become professional wrestlers. As they'll tell it, the sons assumed that the best way to test their own character to discover who they really were was to wrestle just like dad. 
or were they heavily pressured to wrestle by debt? Uh, let's start with Kevin. Kevin Atkinson makes his professional debut as Kevin Von Erich in Fairfield, Texas, June 11th, 1977. He had just turned 20. He dreamt briefly of playing in the NFL, just like his dad had. He was actually a fullback at North State Texas University, but an injury killed his NFL dream. David, who had just turned 19, made his debut shortly afterwards. And soon, father and sons would be wrestling together. On July 18th, 1977, Fritz and David become, uh, or they beat, excuse me, Captain USA and Gary Hart. Then November 14th, 1977, Fritz, David, Kevin Von Erich beat Gary Hart, Captain USA, and Ox Baker. Kerry will make his debut on Thanksgiving weekend in 1977, only 17 when he started, but a big 17-year-old, the most muscular of the brothers. And soon all three brothers are becoming Dallas wrestling sensations. Following year, June 26, 1978, 20-year-old David Von Erich marries 18-year-old uh, uh, girl named Candy. Their daughter will be born just a few months later, October 19th. Her name is Natasha Zoena Atkinson, but tragically she will pass away at just two months old. Dies of SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. So much early death in this family. Uh, you know, uh, never really recovering from that loss. Just over a year later, the couple will separate July 12th, 1979 and uh, not get back together. Before that, the three oldest remaining Von Erich brothers and Fritz will make their debut as a quartet. December 26, 1978. Results unknown, but since Fritz was the booker, you know, they probably won. Fritz's last match in Japan will take place January 5th, 1979. He'll lose to Jumbo Suruta. He will not return again for 14 years, and even then he won't wrestle. For the meantime, Dallas is where it's at. He and his sons don't have to travel too far. They're making great money. They're regional superstars, right? Why go anywhere else? By the spring of 1979, David and Kevin Von Erich are the Texas Tag Team Champions, a championship whose winners Fritz controlled, of course. Still in magazine interviews, Fritz will claim the boys did it all themselves. He'll say, I'm in a bad position. Anything good I say about David and Kevin is viewed as some family hype. Not the case. These two kids have carefully developed into wrestling's greatest young tag team. I have to admit that they've succeeded beyond my wildest dreams. Notice how he puts David's name first, even though Kevin is the oldest. Uh, already it's becoming obvious to many that David is Fritz's natural successor. All three boys had the moves, but David had the star power. He was good behind the mic, good in interviews, knew how to rile up a crowd. He wasn't just a good wrestler, he was a great showman. Fritz soon realized that the best show uh, was him fighting alongside David, and now the two of them fight matches together throughout the spring. Around this time, Mattel Toy Company contacts Kevin and David about allowing the company to manufacture doll-like action figures of the boys. They'll be called world-class championship wrestling action figures. How cool is that? Right? Who wouldn't want their action figure in stores? I love it. Uh, unfortunately, the Mattel representative missed the appointment with David at the ranch and arrived late. Nobody told Fritz somebody was coming. And the family was sitting down for dinner when somebody knocked at the door. Fritz went to answer it, bellowing in his deep, gravelly voice, What do you want? Finally, he comes back to the table alone. David musters up the courage to ask who it was. And he just grumbles, Some guy trying to sell dolls. Dad. David said, that guy represented one of the largest toy manufacturers in the world. And they want to make action figures that look like us, not sell us anything. What'd you tell him? And Fritz said plainly, I told him we were eating supper. You can come back some other time. I also told the dumbass that we were wrestlers. So we didn't need any damn dolls. Okay. So I guess uh, Fritz was not maybe big on having uh, action figure in stores. Listen, brother, I'm not a doll. Okay. I don't play with dolls, brother. You call them action figures all you want. You know, I know that an action figure is just a doll with a different name. What's next, brother? My own line of teacups? Would you like to have a tea party with me, brother? Would you like me to put my hair in pigtails? Wear a frilly little dress? 
Ask how many lumps of sugar you would like in your cup, brother. Should we bake cupcakes together and jump rope and write in our diaries about the cutest boys in class? Wonder if they might ask us to the dance someday, brother. Do you want a hug? Talk about our feelings? Cry and become in touch with our emotions, brother? Not today. I'd rather punch my sons in their fucking faces than open up a door that leads away from toxic masculinity to playing with some fucking dolls and shit, brother. Or, I, or you know, something like that. I don't know exactly, but some. Uh, probably not the best idea to keep doing that voice this cold. David tried to arrange another meeting, but the representative was allegedly too scared to come back to the ranch. <laughs> Still within a year, the company did produce Von Eric action figures. Never mind, brother. I guess action figures are pretty cool and shit, brother. Forget what I said about the tea parties. Uh, later, WWE uh, Carrie Von Eric dolls will sell on eBay for around 300 400 bucks. Can't imagine what the original ones would cost now. Uh, couldn't find any of those uh, online that are up for sale. August 1st, 1980, 23-year-old Kevin Von Eric marries a young woman named Pam. While her life before marrying Kevin remains largely private, we do know that their connection blossomed during a brief encounter, leading to a short but intense courtship, Hail Lucifina. In 1981, they'll welcome their first daughter, Kristen, and they'll go on to have uh, three more kids. Now let's pivot over to Carrie. Back in 1980, Carrie was named to represent the U.S. in the 1980 Olympics in Moscow, uh, throwing the discus. He had set uh, world records as an undergraduate at the University of Houston. He'd already wrestled with his dad and brothers in several matches, but still seemed more uh, devoted to discus. Dude was a phenomenal athlete. Unfortunately for Kerry, the Soviet Union invaded Afghanistan at the end of 1979, prompting President Jimmy Carter to suspend technology and grain sales to the Soviet Union. Then Carter joined 63 other countries to boycott the 1980 Olympics. In one of his uh, very few political statements, Fritz would condemn the move, saying, I've always thought that was the dumbest thing a U.S. president could do. It was not fair to our boys. They'd work their butts off to get ready for those games, only to be let down. Yeah, that does suck. Athletes train their entire childhoods and early adult lives for the Olympics, and if your country doesn't let you participate, real good uh, chance, you know, you won't ever get to go again. Kerry now is disillusioned with throwing the discus, and he pursues wrestling alongside his brothers full-time. By September of 1980, the three brothers and Fritz are fighting together at least once a month. Kevin Von Erich will soar to number 16 in wrestling world's rankings. David is in the coveted number nine spot. Kevin, smaller of the first three wrestling Von Erich boys at 6'2", a little over 220 pounds, uh, was the barefoot flyer, the risk taker. David was the big cowboy, six foot eight, 230 pounds. Uh, he wrestled like Fritz, gave great interviews. Kerry, meanwhile, had a sort of dumb jock persona, which fit with his huge muscles, gorgeous shoulder length hair. Dude was 6'2", between 250 260 pounds of chiseled muscle, massive arms and pecs. Von Erich family had something to offer every wrestling fan, no matter what their personal taste was. Indeed, the early 80s would be the heyday of Von Erich popularity as the brothers would bring in a younger audience, especially teen girls, young women, and revitalize the sport. Uh, these guys, especially Carrie, were heartthrobs. They were viewed both as God's champions and the people's champions. Down-home Texas family who loved God, each other, and wrestling in that order. November 15th, 1981, Fritz begins broadcasting a pilot program from the Dallas Sportatorium. I love the name Sportatorium, by the way. Uh, his design of the show would go a long way in making his sons even bigger stars, national stars. Hosted by wrestling announcer Gene Goodson, not mean Gene, of later wrestling announcing fame. Uh, with Fritz doing the color commentary, the show was quickly picked up by the Christian Bible Network, CBN, and it would distribute it nationwide. Mark Lawrence served as the ring announcer. David Manning served as the referee. All men came together to form narratives that would skyrocket the boys' popularity. 
In line with their personas as good guys, the show focused primarily on various friends turning their backs on the Von Erich brothers and mercenaries brought in by longtime familial rivals like Gary Hart and Skandor Akbar to take them down. show also helped pioneer the use of vignettes, little video packages to introduce wrestlers, push soap opera-like narratives along, right? This is all before WWE, before WWF. Seeing more of their outside-of-the-ring lives on this network helped solidify the relationship between the Von Erichs and their fans meaning the Von Erich boys became uh, more like rock stars than showmen, mobbed by adoring fans whenever they left the house. Things are going great for the Von Erichs right now, right? They keep soaring to greater and greater heights. Forget cursed. Right now, they seem blessed. Just moving on up. Late 1981, David leaves his father's wrestling promotion briefly to wrestle in Florida. Does this against Fritz's wishes, and he'll wrestle there as a villain. Pisses off Fritz big time. He'd spent the better part of a decade trying to rehabilitate his wrestling persona's shady past. Kevin soon calls David, tells him that their dad wants to apologize. Kevin also calls Fritz, says David wants to apologize. The lie works. David reunites with his family, returns to Dallas. And now they'll just stay together. Uh, But also Fritz uh, feels like he can't focus on his promotion and wrestling career at the same time and decides it is time to retire. June 14th, 1982, Fritz has his retirement match, beating King Kong Bundy to win the American Championship for the 13th and final time. God, I used to watch Bundy wrestle uh, a few years later in the WWF. He co-headlined WrestleMania 1986, went up against Hulk Hogan, big boy. 6'4", over 450 pounds of quite a bit of muscle, but maybe more padding. Bundy took an early advantage of the match by attacking Fritz as he was removing his sweater. Fritz recovered and then applied the Iron Claw. As the battle moved outside the ring, Bundy attacked Fritz with a chair, but then Fritz turned it back on him, clubbed him with a chair, followed up with a pin. Come out of retirement just once after this. May 6, 1984, as part of a tag team championship with his sons. But for the most part, now he's just focused on his kids. How to, you know, build them into superstars and keep them superstars. Between 1981 and 1982, his nationally televised wrestling promotion, World Class Championship Wrestling, would earn an average of $11 million a year. His show, second only to Soul Train, as a syndicated program appearing on 80 stations across the U.S. and in 23 foreign countries. He was out earning the WWF, which had formed in 1979, but had been around in various regional forms since 1953, starting off as Capital Wrestling Federation, soon becoming a regional promotion under the national banner of the NWA, National Wrestling Association, uh, a business uh, currently around, actually owned now by Billy Corgan, frontman for the Smashing Pumpkins. Anyway, Fritz would uh, describe his approach to promoting in the 80s like this. We would set up our shows as if they were soap operas on TV, so the fans could see the feuds begin continue and grow each week in a more or less natural way. What I mean by this is if both wrestlers get into their good or bad routine, the crowds will usually take over from there and will label one as the hero and one as the villain. However, the winner would and should always be the better man. I always felt like the outcome would take care of itself. That's not entirely true. In truth, the outcomes uh, rarely took care of themselves. Fritz decided who the better man was based on a variety of considerations before the matches began, including a wrestler's loyalty to Fritz, and his ability to uh, win over fans. Fritz also went beyond merely uh, choreographing fights. He provided his boys with anabolic steroids and turned them into muscled supermen. Steroids were legal in wrestling at this time, and their use was widespread. So Fritz probably just wanted uh, his sons to be able to keep up with the competition, who were undoubtedly using them as well. But did the pressure to keep up come at a terrible price with what steroids may have been doing to their brains? Doctors now know that anabolic steroids taken in massive doses for long periods of time can often lead to wild mood swings, extreme roid rage, uh, roid rage anger, 
trouble with impulse control and decision-making and other long-term problems with the brain structure and function. One study used scans to compare the brains of people who had used anabolic steroids for at least two years with those who had never taken them, and the results showed obvious differences in the size and shape of specific brain regions between the groups. The steroid users performed worse on tests measuring memory, attention, and decision-making skills. Another study found that people who would use anabolic steroids for more than two years more likely to suffer from depression and anxiety disorders than people who had never used steroids. Paranoia, extreme irritability, gastrointestinal problems, fluid retention, increased risk of heart attacks, a variety of other ailments can often do result from long-term steroid abuse. Hitting the juice too hard can wreak fucking havoc on your body and your mind. Some people who have used anabolic steroids over a long time report symptoms that mimic those seen with Parkinson's disease. Quitting steroids can cause problems too. Some people who stop using anabolic steroids after long-term use may experience withdrawal symptoms like fatigue, loss of appetite, extreme depression, and trouble sleeping. Hormones are directly linked to our mood, right? And our mental health. And unnaturally elevating levels of hormones or extremely low levels of hormones, if you stop taking roids, for example, can leave you in a real bad mental state. A variety of studies have associated heavy anabolic steroid use with greatly increased odds of suffering a major depressive episode and thus greatly increased chance of committing suicide. Uh, Considering what will happen to the Von Erich boys here soon, pretty likely that steroid use took its toll on the boys' minds and helped lead them towards making tragic and irreversible decisions. In 1982, in addition to supplying them with steroids, Fritz also starts looking for a suitable rivalry for his newly famous sons. David has an idea. In Florida, he met three wild, badass Southern wrestlers called the Freebirds. The Von Erich boys needed rivals, and the Freebirds seemed perfect. They were cast as cheating, beer-drinking outlaws. And they would get on TV and rant about the Von Erich's squeaky, clean appearance. They'd call them daddy's boys, and wrestling fans loved it. There had never been a rivalry like that before in professional wrestling, said David Melsner, or uh, David Meltzer, a man obsessed with wrestling history who published the Wrestling Observer, a newsletter for the wrestling industry. It was beautifully set up and it made the Von Erichs national celebrities long before other wrestlers like Hulk Hogan became celebrities. The Freebirds were some of the earliest pioneers in using popular songs as ring entrance music, sometimes alternating between Freebird by Leonard Skinner and Georgia On My Mind by Willie Nelson. That's weird. Freebird's a fucking great entrance song, but Georgia On My Mind? I love Willie Nelson. Listened to him a bunch growing up, one of Pop Awards' favorites. One of the few guys he, he called a hippie that he actually liked. <laughs> and, and it's a great song, but check this out. It's a super slow ballad. Georgia, Georgia, no peace I find. That's what you're coming to the ring to? No sweet song. Eh. Is this getting the crowd hyped? On my mind. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think uh, I think Freebird, much better choice. Lord, I can't right? Fucking coming down the aisle. High five everybody all fucking roided out. Oh, fuck yeah. Right? Shaking the ropes. Is he fucking solo so hard? This shit makes me want to wrestle right now. I forgot how much I love Leonard Skinner. Uh, the Ronnie Van Zant years, anyway. When I came across this in the notes, I immediately switched up my music to only listen to Skinner. I played the rest of that solo, but it's like four minutes. Uh, 
I've listened to an 80s uh, hard rock playlist before. Motley Crue, Cinderella, Guns N' Roses, Def Leppard, John Bon Jovi. Shot through the heart and you're to blame, darling. You give love a bad name. It's a good playlist. We're getting into the mood of some 80s wrestling. Uh, the success of that part of their act led WCCW to incorporate more popular rock songs as entrance music for other wrestlers. You know, the Von Erichs walked down the aisle to Tom Sawyer by Rush. Uh, George Thorogood's Bad to the Bone, used for the dynamic duo of Chris Adams and Gino Hernandez. More great choices. Fucking way better than Georgia on my mind. <laughs> I still am so confused by this. It's an entrance song. Uh, the promotion had numerous popular acts now, but the Von Erich Brothers, most popular. Nearly 15,000 people came out in 1984 to see the Von Erich boys make a token appearance at Town East Mall in Mesquite, Nevada. That's fucking crazy. Most of them young women squealing like they were the Beatles showing up on Ed Sullivan. These guys truly were rock stars. Uh, the first time Carrie wrestled in Chicago, 37,000 people filled Comiskey Park, chanting his name before the matches began. That's amazing. That had to have felt incredible. 37,000 people. At least 200,000 households in Dallas-Fort Worth alone were watching the Von Erichs' weekly show in 1984. And the program also went out to 60 markets in the U.S. and into, uh, into Japan, into the Middle East. Black market copies of the show would be uh, shown as far away as Nigeria. Von Erichs now became international stars, traveling as far as Japan and Israel to wrestle. There was even the Von Erich Fan Club of Israel. Members would make visits to the Wailing Wall in the old city of Jerusalem to pray for the family's success. They were fucking huge in Israel. I love it. These guys on top of the world, again, the Von Erichs seem blessed right now, not cursed. And with the three oldest remaining brothers rapidly rising in the world of professional wrestling, it seemed natural for Mike and Chris to follow. Mike showed promising athletic skills in high school, but I think he always felt a lot more pressure on him, Kerry would later say, being in a family of overachievers. Here he was with three older brothers who were never happy unless they did their best. Mike was thrown into that life in an awful hurry. June 18th, 1983, uh, main Von Erich heartthrob, Carrie Von Erich, will marry Catherine M. Murray, and they'll go on to have two children together. In 1984, the Von Erichs will draw 41,000 paid audience members to Texas Stadium in Irving, just outside of Dallas, for what was then the largest audience ever to see a wrestling match in North America. This is where the Dallas Cowboys played at that time. America's team. Von Erichs, America's wrestlers. At the time, Kerry had been named the most popular wrestler in the U.S. by national wrestling magazines, more popular than Hulk Hogan, even. He looked like Samson with his long, curly hair and magnificent muscled body. His every move and match followed by thousands and thousands of teen girls. He was the first true pinup star of wrestling. He looked kind of like uh, the Ultimate Warrior would look later. National tour, but not as crazy. National tour was now planned. The Von Erichs poised to become even more famous. Even Mike was on the come up, right? The young Von Erich, although possessing a smaller frame, his older brothers he'd roid up put on a uh, 238 pounds of muscle on a six foot two frame 1984 mike still raw and experienced at the age of 20 voted rookie of the year by one national wrestling magazine another wrestling magazine voted kevin man of the year and named carrie the most popular wrestler von erics dominating professional wrestling also starting to realize the harsh glare of the public spotlight not always fun though all four of them had married at early ages they were pressured to pretend to be single so they would not lose the adoration of thousands of teenage girl fans. Fritz demanded they never drink in public and never turn away an autograph seeker. All of them became born-again Christians. They would deliver testimonies with such mesmerizing conviction, hundreds would answer the altar call at the end of the services. But was that conversion even real or just part of the show? 
Imagine the pressure to continually pretend to be somebody you're not in order to keep the money flowing in for your family. What would that do to your mental state? Right? Would you feel like a huge phony most of the time? And right now, when things are looking like they're going so great is when tragedy strikes again. David Von Erich was the most temperamental of the Von Erich sons, domineering in the ring as his father had been and almost impervious to injuries. But in late 1983, a few months before a big trip to Japan, where the Von Erichs were revered uh, almost as much as they were in the US at this time, he starts to throw up, uh, like frequently, for a while. He had had some kind of stomach sickness, he told his family, but you know, ah, not, nothing to be worried about, it'll go away, but it doesn't go away. And instead of going to the doctor, he just keeps wrestling. Avoiding the doctor like that, God, that is a fucking dead giveaway that something bad is about to happen. Dead giveaway. Dead giveaway. My neighbor got big testicles because we see this dude every day. Every day. We eat ribs. <laughs> I love it so much. Charles, not ready to leave the suck first. Not quite yet. He's going to be around for a while. Some form. Uh, and in his Tokyo hotel room, February 10th, 1994, at the age of only 25, David drops dead. And now the tabloids have a field day with how he died. Was he sick? Was it a drug overdose? Were the Von Erichs as wholesome as they claimed? A penthouse reporter asked a Von Erich business associate if drugs had killed David. That was the rumor. Well, Fritz had a copy of the death report from the U.S. Embassy in Japan, and it clearly said David died from acute uh, it's enteritis, a severe intestinal infection. But the rumors of a drug overdose would still persist because, uh, I don't know, better to gossip about, I guess. David's funeral, meanwhile, is simply astonishing. More than a thousand people We'll pack the First Baptist Church in Denton, Texas. Around 2,000 more gather outside. The balcony is like something out of a Beatles concert. Teenage girls sobbing, hysterical, inconsolable. On each side of the closed casket, portraits of David. One minister's eulogy describes how David was in the end victorious because he won his match with the devil. Channel 39 later ran an hour-long television special on David's life, showing the large, happy-faced kid copying his dad's great hold the iron claw for the first time. David's eyes growing wide as blood seeps out of the head of an opponent. The family's inherent sense of drama, <clears throat> excuse me, their equally powerful sense of loss leads them to create a few months after David's death, a memorial match at Texas Stadium in David's honor. May 6, 1984, in front of 41,000 fans. This is the big match I talked about earlier. Fritz came out of retirement to help Kevin and Mike beat the Freebirds in David's honor. I'm guessing they didn't come to the ring with George on my mind for this big match. Intensely emotional match. Then Kerry defeats the reigning world champion, the nature boy, Ric Flair, to gain the world championship belt for the first time. David was right there next to me, Kerry told reporters. And it truly did seem for a while that David's death would only add to the Von Erich mystique, becoming a compelling rallying point for the famous family. Kerry would lose the belt only 18 days later in Yokosoru, Japan. Uh, excuse me. Uh, Yoka so Oh my gosh. Yoka Suka. Japan. Uh, back to Flair. He would lose it back to Flair in a bout that was marred by controversy. Von Erich's feet were on the bottom rope following a reverse roll-up, but the referee ignored this and made the count. Woo! There's no controversy, baby. It was fate. You find the nature boy. You got to know that God is going to be on the side of his most perfect creation. Woo! Go back and watch some old Ric Flair interviews, by the way. The guy is fucking gifted. <laughs> Show promo. Uh, he's an entertainer. Still is. Uh, in truth, NWA only allowed Kerry a short reign as world champion and was told to drop the belt to Flair before the United Champions encounter on May 29th between Flair and Ricky the Dragon Steamboat. I used to love watching the dragon. Still, for the Von Erich diehards, the emotional truth was more important. The Von Erichs were still on top. But a year later, Mike now suddenly is rushed to the hospital with toxic shock syndrome. August of 1985. 
He seemingly had been fine, having just gotten married to uh, Shawnee Garza the previous February. He had a shoulder injury, got surgery for it, was released. Everything seemed to be okay, but it wasn't. A rare bacteria had entered his body during surgery. His temperature soared to 107 degrees. His weight would drop a full 50 pounds and most of his organs would suffer significant damage. For days, he would only be able to respond to questions by blinking his eyes. At one point, Baylor Hospital, where doctors gave Mike very little chance of living, were receiving 400 calls an hour from well-wishers. They had to hire extra people to handle these phone calls. Uh, Nevertheless, he will live. Fritz boomed at the doctors down the hallway and led his family into a room to pray. Miraculously, Mike did survive. In their testimonies later to the churches they would go to, Fritz and his sons would say that God had given them a miracle. Still, those who knew Mike well also said he was never going to be the same again. Did I mention that chronic use of high level of steroids increases your susceptibility to a variety of infections? It does. It weakens your immune system. Did David's intestinal infection become fatal in part due to his steroid use? Right? Is it possible that Mike became infected by a rare bacteria because of his steroid use? It is possible. Then just a year later, June of 1986, Kerry slams into a police car with his motorcycle. Requires 15 hours of surgery on one of his feet. Doctors had trouble restoring blood flow through the leg. They inserted pins and needles into the foot, had to fuse part of the bone. According to his brother, Kevin, Kerry then re-injured the foot following surgery by attempting to walk on it too soon. And then doctors had to amputate it. He'll continue wrestling after the accident following 16 months of rehabilitation with a uh, prosthesis and will keep the amputation a secret to the majority of his fans and fellow wrestlers, even going to the extreme length of showering with his boots on in the locker rooms backstage. When you look up old matches from after he lost his foot, it is insane how the loss of one of his feet did not slow him down, at least to my eye, as a high-flying professional wrestler. Still fucking jacked, still flying around the ring, body slamming dudes left and right, didn't even walk with a limp. How many roids did he have to take to speed up and maintain his recovery? Fritz now worried about the family business. Mike is recovering from toxic shock syndrome. Carrie can't yet wrestle again. No one knows if he's going to wrestle again yet. David is gone. To bolster the family image, and because he's running out of sons who can wrestle, he makes a desperate move and brings in a handsome young wrestler from Oregon named Kevin Vaughn. He'll rename Kevin Lance Von Eric and tell the audience that he's a distant cousin. And this will be a huge mistake. This move will knock a big hole into the integrity of the Von Eric family. And it'll cause a lot of infighting. None of the brothers were in favor of this move. It was all Fritz's idea. Many loyal Von Eric believers doubted the story from the very beginning. Even when the sons would talk about how they grew up playing with their cousin Lance. And now they look like liars. I mean, they were liars. Making matters worse, the new Von Eric, not even a good wrestler. And he was an asshole. Despite not being loved by fans, despite not being a very good wrestler, he goes to Fritz and demands a lot more money. Fritz, outraged, says no. But then Lance leaves his promotion company to join a rival promoter, leaving the Von Erich family uh, back where they started, but now embarrassed. Fritz tells Lance the Von Erich name is copyright protected when it comes to wrestling, outs him to fans, telling the fans that, you know what? He wasn't a real Von Erich. And yes, that will hurt Kevin, who will now have to wrestle as the fabulous Lance, but it hurts the Von Erichs more because Fritz and his sons look like fucking idiots. They told their fans the guy was family. Now, Fritz exposes it all as a big lie. Very bad move for the brand. Meanwhile, Mike Von Erich still trying to return to wrestling. But the toxic shock has done too much damage and a car wreck adds to that damage. In 1986, Mike suffered head injuries from a car accident when his vehicle overturned after he lost control of it. Ever since that, his coordination was off. In one match, he tried to execute a dropkick, just landed on his face. Uh, 
Sadly, the high fever also left him with permanent brain damage, affected his speech a bit and affected his memory. Mike was now doing shit like uh, he'd start to do a wrestling move and then just stop and freeze. Just, you know, completely forgot what he was trying to do. At a match in Austin uh, with Kevin, he grabbed the microphone to, uh, you know, start yelling some hype shit about the fucking great Von Eriks, you know, and about the evil enemy, and then just forgot what he's supposed to say. And then just stood there, mouth open, saying nothing, like uh, Mitch McConnell as the cameras roll. It's fucking painful to watch. Mike not doing well at all. Once he attacked a streetlight in frustration over his condition, screams, cries over the pressure to be David after his brother's death. Kevin will later say it was just a nightmare, a damn nightmare. I thought it's all going. We're all finished. I'd look out and watch Mike trying to wrestle, knowing how badly he felt. And I knew how much he wanted to keep up the family name. And I just couldn't believe how sad it all was. Carrie also felt pressure created by David's absence to become the family's, you know, true champion. Adding to family turmoil, the wrestling business is rapidly changing and evolving away from Fritz and his sons. Due to a stream of glowing publicity from the mainstream press, Sports Illustrated ran a cover story on WrestleMania, professional wrestling competition nationwide goes through a major upheaval in the mid-1980s. Television networks and syndicates clamor for more and more wrestling shows. In 1986, a Dallas viewer could watch 44 hours of televised wrestling a week from various promotions. Two years before that, the only shows they got were the ones starring the Von Eriks and others on their promotion. Right? Competition is increasing tremendously. More and more stars are being made. More and more wrestlers' salaries are going through the roof, which will attract more and more top-tier talent to try and make some uh, of that top money. Top-level wrestlers are making, they, who were making excuse me, $200,000 a year in the late 70s now fetching over $2 million a year. And a new breed of wrestling promoters emerges who, who care nothing about the old rules. Several organizations came into Dallas to run shows, including promoters from other territories. Fritz thought these newcomers would, you know, adhere to the way things used to be, kind of pay their dues. Nope. The WWF, the World Wrestling Federation, now eclipses Fritz's world-class championship wrestling, a.k.a. the World-Class Wrestling Association as the top dog. WWF now gets the sport's biggest stars, Hulk Hogan. Rowdy Roddy Piper, Andre the Giant, the Ultimate Warrior, others. They create a true nationwide wrestling circuit in direct defiance of old, the old regional system. Some of Fritz's business associates uh, also went off to start their own competing promotions. One of Fritz's closest allies, Ken Mantell, begins the Wild West Wrestling Organization in Fort Worth. Right, they're right in the middle of his territory. Fritz now uh, finds some of his top talent being lured away to make more money elsewhere. The, the Freebirds, other popular tag teams like the Fantastics leave. To make matters even worse, uh, you know, some of the best wrestlers who stay with the Von Eric camp, like uh, Gino Hernandez, pass away. He dies of a cocaine overdose. Again, again, a bad look for the wholesome brand. Attendance starts to plummet at the weekly uh, Von Eric matches at the Sportatorium. Goes from 2,000, you know, people in the Von Eric's heyday in the early 80s to crowds of about 300 now. Wrestling fans just had too many other options. And the Von Eric's, with all that they're dealing with, not able to keep up with the competition. In a move of frustration, Fritz's organization, which still ran most of the professional wrestling in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, they decided to break away from associations with any and all other wrestling organizations. Uh, they formed their own federation and declare a separate world champion. Under the new federation, to no one's surprise, Kevin becomes the world champion. And in late 1986, plans are announced to start a major Von Erich over America tour. The Suns are slated to hit every major city in the country, try to reclaim some of the popularity they'd had just a year or two before. But then tragedy strikes again. April 16th, 1987, police find a body curled up in an old sleeping bag 
in a dense grove of woods a few hundred yards away from the Von Erich boyhood home. After being arrested for a DUI, Mike had driven out to the old family stomping grounds and taken a lethal overdose of tranquilizers on April 12th. He's just 23. Police found wrestling boots in the back of his, uh, seat of his car, along with a short note addressed to his mom. It said, Mom, you have always been wonderful. I am in a better place. No note to his dad, uh, from what I can tell from sources. Mike was the son who had uh, quietly gone to visit handicapped kids, a son who, without telling anybody, had been given money to a poor old lady uh, who lived near him. But for him, being kind, being charitable, not enough. He wanted to wrestle on the national stage, wanted to be a champion, wanted to live up to his dad's hopes for him, but he just couldn't. A few days before his death, Mike had come to his mom and told her that he was scared. He was afraid that in a year or two, something else in his body was going to stop working. Still hadn't recovered from effects of toxic shock syndrome in that car, car accident. He was never going to fully recover, but he hadn't accepted that. The infection, the accident that followed, left him with irreversible brain damage, other health problems. He asked his mom, what was he supposed to do, right, if he couldn't make a living as a wrestler? Doris tried to comfort him by telling him, you know, his family would support him. You know, however, he, whatever he wanted to do, he'd be fine. He didn't need to be a wrestler, but Mike didn't see it that way. For him, it was be a big, badass professional wrestler or, you know, it just wasn't worth being at all. He found himself in a deep hole of a major depressive episode and he just couldn't see his way out. This time, there will be no great public declaration of grief. There will be no memorial match in Texas Stadium, you know, uh, just the arena bell ringing 10 times in tribute while the crowd stands silently by. The Von Erich wrestling empire is crumbling. Thanksgiving 1987, the Von Erichs hold a reunion for the triumphant return of Carrie now, finally ready to return from uh, to the ring after 16 months of rehabilitation. About 2,000 people show up. Far from the 41,000 that has showed up for the memorial match for David. Backstage before the match, Fritz can be found leaning against the wall. He looks tired, arms held loosely to sides. His stare is distant. Doris sits nearby, solemn, sitting properly in a chair. Down the hall, Carrie stretches. Because of his injuries, he's no longer, uh, you know, has the mobility to make his famous soaring drop kicks the same way. He'd lost some speed. However, he had spent much of his 16-month convalescence in the weight room, and he is fucking jacked. Amazingly, he has even more muscles packed onto his bulky frame. Wearing an Elvis-style sequin white robe with Carrie on the back, the star wrestler has a look on his face one reporter described as murderous. Before the match, Fritz says he has an announcement to make. He is retiring. Like out of the promotion business now. He'll sell out his financial interest in the company uh, that promoted he and his son's careers and will only make rare public appearances. Ken Mantell, his old business partner, who had once left him in an angry split, is returning to run the wrestling promotion. This night, he'll still be part of the show, though. And he pulls out some old showbiz moves. Out by the ring, Fritz, acting mostly as Kevin's manager at this point, entertains the crowd when the matches are set to start in a way only he could. The ring announcer, referring to some vague fucking made-up rule, Says, you know, Fritz has to be locked in a cage while Kevin wrestles, uh, warming up the crowd for Kerry. The bald-headed Gary Hart, Fritz's arch nemesis, manager for another wrestler, begins taunting Fritz, throwing him monkey food, calling him names. Inside the ring, the barefoot Kevin slams against the ropes, fires himself across the mat like a stone from a catapult, climbs onto the top of a turnbuckle, swan dives onto his opponent. Meanwhile, Fritz beckons Hart to come close. The crowd's in an uproar. Suddenly, as Kevin pins his opponent to the mat, Fritz reaches out, grabs Hart, starts slamming his head into the bars of the cage. Then when Kerry comes out for his 20 minutes of fury, the place fucking explodes. For the diehard fans present, their hero has returned. He takes on his rival, Brian uh, Adias, uses the iron claw, chokes him around the neck, spins him around, swings him off his feet. Then he lifts Adias over his head, slams him onto the mat. Adias, helpless, seems lost, his mouth half open in agony. And Kerry's doing all of this on one fucking foot. A true champion, brother! 
He had a power inside that didn't conform to laws of nature, brother. An energy, a chi, a level 5.2 light worker. Looking like someone visited the ruins of the Library of Alexandria, found some fireball wizard scrolls, has that raw strength of spirit, brother. Who needs two feet if you have the heart of 10 men and the biceps of 20, brother? Then when some of uh, Adidas' villainous comrades sneak into the ring to try and gang up on Carrie, out comes Kevin, the loyal Von Erich brother, ensuring another Von Erich victory. Were the remaining Von Erichs poised to ascend to higher wrestling heights again now? Well, Kerry will wrestle throughout 1988 with nobody knowing that he'd had his foot amputated, not until November of that year. November 12th, the professional wrestling match was held between Kerry and Colonel De Beers at the Showboat Hotel in Las Vegas in an AWA, American Wrestling Association show. At some point in the match, Colonel De Beers pulls on Von Erich's leg, rips his boot off and exposes his missing foot. And this little stunt really seemed to fuck Carrie's head up. While he still had his chiseled body, big smile, there was something different, something missing. I'm not talking about his foot. His overall presence now is lacking. He'd lost his mojo. He was also now unbeknownst to almost everyone, after 10 years of dealing with pain in his leg, or not 10 years, after years, excuse me, of dealing with pain in his leg, addicted to painkillers. Still, he pushed past all this pain for a while, goes on to win several more titles, forms a tag team with Jeff Jarrett, went into tag team title with him, wins a Texas heavyweight title twice, 1990, Kerry feuds violently with Matt Bourne, who had turned heel during a ringside interview. During one match, the two battled outside the sportatorium into the parking lot during a thunderstorm. Exciting shit. Manager Percy Pringle also turns heel, begins feuding, uh, begin, began feuding with Kerry. Then Kerry makes the move to join the WWF, the World Wrestling Federation, the biggest promotion in the world by far now, the promotion that would become the WWE in 2002, following their legal dispute with the World Wildlife Fund over the initials WWF. He leaves the Von Erich tradition to Kevin and the youngest brother, Chris. In the WWF, president, promoter, and sometimes wrestler Vince McMahon will change his name from Kerry Von Erich to the Texas Tornado. And now world-class withdraws from the USWA. Without Kerry, they lost their TV deal, most of the revenue, and they fold three months later. As the Texas Tornado, Kerry keeps competing, winning against Buddy Rose, defeating longtime rival Mr. Perfect, and wins against Tongan professional wrestler Haku. Now let's pivot to Chris for a bit. Poor Chris just never had what it took to be a wrestling star. He was a lot smaller than his brothers. He was 5'5", 175 pounds. He was scrappy, but he also had asthma. And the medication he took for asthma left his bones brittle. Not a good combo for a job that involves being slammed into a mat by 300-pound roided-up acrobats over and over again. He was never destined to gain the same kind of stardom his brothers had. But he wanted it. He loved wrestling, Maybe more than any of the brothers. He wanted to succeed so bad. He made his professional debut in 1990 at the age of 20. Became a full-fledged professional wrestler after a few years of, uh, of appearing in various matches as a kind of add-on. And he began tagging his brother Kevin and longtime alley Chris Adams in matches against people like Mr. Pringle and Steve Austin. Yep, stone cold Steve Austin. Despite his comparative lack of athleticism and size, Chris was loved by fans, right? Who doesn't love an underdog? Uh, underdog. They'd often yell like, go Chris, go during his matches. But he kept getting hurt. The prednisone he took, you know, for his asthma made his bones brittle enough to keep breaking during matches. His mind was willing, but his body was not. That frustrated Chris to no end. This all amounted to a dead giveaway. The more tragedy was coming. Dead giveaway. Mm -hmm. Dead giveaway. My neighbor big testicles because we see this every day. September 12th, 1991, a few weeks before he's to turn 22. At about 9 p.m., Chris's body is found by Kevin on the family farm. He'd shot himself in the head. According to Kevin, Chris came to him in the middle of the night, wanting a VCR Kevin borrowed. 
He was acting off. Kevin asked him if he was okay. He said he was, but then worried about him. Kevin went looking for his little brother, found him sitting alone at the top of a little hill. Kevin went on, talked with him, where he revealed that he started thinking about suicide after he broke his arm earlier that month. After Kevin pleaded with him not to harm himself, and Chris re reassured himself, yeah, he wouldn't, he's just, you know, feeling down. Kevin leaves, returns to the house. When he gets back inside, his dad is up. He asked his dad if Chris had ever talked about suicide before. Chris was like, no. Now Fritz tells him, go check on your brother again and be fast. He returns to Chris, but he's moments too late. Chris had already shot himself. It was a bullet wound and a, you know, exit wound in the back of his head. His heart was still beating, but would not be for long. Toxicology reports would reveal cocaine and Valium in his system at the time of his death. His interment located at Grove Hill Memorial Park in Dallas. Now, there are only two Von Erich brothers left, Kevin and Carrie. And poor Fritz and Doris, especially Doris. She had now lost her little brother and four of six sons, all dead by the age of 25. Can't imagine the kind of grief that would leave you with. Carrie was still resting for the WWF, but due to his painkiller addiction, concerns, you know, about more fans finding out about his missing foot, it really embarrassed him uh, due to grief over the loss of another brother. He found himself winning fewer and fewer matches. His heart was just not in it. The Von Erich magic was gone. If he had made it to the WWF like five years earlier, he probably would have been the fucking biggest superstar of, in, in the wrestling world at that time. Bigger than Hogan, maybe. But he wasn't. As a result, he's moving further and further down the rankings. He's getting fewer and fewer well-publicized matches. Eventually, he leaves the WWF to work for a regional promoter, right? the Global Wrestling Federation in Texas. Huge drop in pay, big ego hit, big drop in prestige. Then he gets divorced. Then his parents get divorced. February 18th, 1993, back in Dallas, Kerry now gets arrested on another drug charge, his second. For his first charge, the date is not mentioned in sources, he had gotten probation. After his second drug arrest, he's looking at bigger consequences, possibly a significant prison sentence. Kerry doesn't want to face the music on this. Too, too much of an epic fall from grace. He'd fallen too far in his mind to ever be able to recover, and he just wants to die. In his later autobiography, former WWE champion, Hall of Famer, Brett the Hitman Hart, wrote that Gary had told him months earlier before his second arrest that he had wanted to follow his three late brothers. They were calling him from heaven. So that February day, he takes his life, fires a single bullet into his heart while at his father's ranch in Denton County, Texas. Dead at the age of 33. Five of six brothers now gone. His parents will now bury the fifth of their six sons. Two years after Carrie's death, his older brother Kevin, now 37, exits the family business. He had seen too much. His career had stalled. His heart wasn't in it. The Von Erich name no longer thrilled fans. It saddened him. It was associated with too much pain, too much loss. Kevin's a living reminder, you know, that his other wrestling brothers are gone. Kevin's last round of glory occurred January 7th, 1995, while competing for Jim Crockett Jr.'s NWA promotion based at the Sportatorium, where he won the North American heavyweight title, defeating Greg Valentine. Man, so many wrestling stars in this episode. Week later, he dropped the title to John Hawk. He then formed a very brief alliance with manager Skandor Akbar cut back on ring appearances, and then formally retired at the end of 1995. Two years later, Fritz Von Erich, a.k.a. Jack Atkinson, the patriarch, the brainchild of the Von Erich wrestling dynasty, dies of brain and lung cancer, September 10th, 1997, after a two-month-long illness. After years of watching his wrestling dynasty crumble, he was 68. His funeral service was held at the First Baptist Church in Dallas, Texas. His body was cremated with his ashes interred in the same plot as his fourth son, Carrie at Grove Hill Memorial Park Cemetery, Dallas, Texas. He'd be survived uh, by his son, Kevin, daughter-in-law, Pam, their four children, and two other grandchildren. A fire in December 2001 causes major damage to the Dallas Sportatorium, home with the Von Erich wrestling empire. 
Sportatorium eventually demolished in February of 2003, thus ending the run of that legendary venue. Almost 15 years later, October 23rd, 2015, Doris will pass away in Hawaii at the age of 82 in her home for the previous eight years. She spent those eight years living with her son, Kevin, daughter-in-law, Pam, her grandkids, and some great-grandkids living on a big, beautiful ranch on the island of Kauai. I hope she found some peace there. It sure looks peaceful as hell. Although no cause of death was mentioned, she's thought to have died of emphysema, which she had battled for years. When she died, she was surrounded by the entire family who serenaded her with how great thou art, said Kevin's daughter, Kristen Nicholas. I kissed her hand and didn't let go, Kristen said. Those hands raised six babies, taught me how to crochet, made about a million cups of coffee and held each one of us one time or another as we cried over the deaths of our brothers or uncles, her sons. I couldn't stop thinking about how much comfort her hands had offered considering what grief she'd experienced and I'd never seen them out and I'd never see them outstretched again for a hug or hear the words, come here, baby, cry with Mimi. She was a rock, as cliche as it sounds, always willing to talk you through the sad times even though her own losses were so much greater. Yeah, rest in peace, Doris. Man, she sounds like, a, like an amazing person. Uh, she'd keep her name Doris Atkinson. She never wanted to be Doris Von Erich. Back in 1988, she told journalist Skip Hollinsworth that she wanted to be known, not as Doris Von Erich, but Doris Atkinson. But to be honest, she said to him, we hardly know who the Atkinsons are anymore. We've been a wrestling family for so long. I suppose I want the family to know that when they are tired of being Von Erichs, there is a place they can come where they can be Atkinsons. Atkinsons. But I don't know if you can ever stop being a Von Erich. She was buried next to her ex-husband, so she'd be close to her boys. And now today, there's only one OG Von Erich left, Kevin. He's 66. He lived for years in Kauai uh, until very recently, apparently, according to one source. Uh, he helps run a family investment business. He roots on the next generation of Von Erich wrestlers. Lacey Von Erich, daughter of Carrie, would actually go on to have her wrestling career uh, in the WWE, last from 2007 to 2010. 2021, she became a part owner of SWE Fury along uh, with business partner Tom Lance. SWE Fury, a Texas-based wrestling promotion. Build is delivering in-your-face Texas-style wrestling. Carrie's two sons currently wrestle for various promotions under the names, or not Carrie, excuse me, Kevin's two sons currently wrestle for various promotions under the names Ross and Marshall Von Erich. In July 2017, they talked their dad Kevin out of retirement for one last match, wrestling at the Rage Mega Show in Israel for the first time in 22 years. Uh, he recently moved back to Texas, purchased a ranch near San Antonio, in September of 2023, Kevin spoke at the Majestic Theater in Dallas to share words of wisdom and some hilarious stories from his days as a wrestler in the 80s and lessons learned from loss. He said during the event, I've seen death. I've seen that it is serious. When you lose someone, they're gone. You learn a lot from things like that. And with that, brother, let's get out of this timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. So is the Von Erich family cursed? Von Erich's story is almost too tragic to believe. Five sons dead, four as young adults, various freak accidents, surgeries, divorces, drug abuse, suicides, and more. How could all that happen to a family who for several years reigned supreme atop the wrestling world, a family marketed as being clean living, God-fearing, all-American good old boys? How could any family, if they weren't cursed, suffer that many separate misfortunes? Well, child mortality globally is about 4%. Let's just call the older Von Erichs children because they were Fritz's children 
and because it would be hard to calculate otherwise. And multiplying that by itself five times gives you 0.00000124, about one in 10 million chance of having five children die before the age of 35. It's fucking crazy. But when you consider certain mitigating factors, the odds of all these Von Erich boys dying gets a little less crazy. First, we looked at the premature deaths of wrestlers, and there are a lot. Well, people like Stone Cold Steve Austin, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, John Cena have pretty much made it out of the game unscathed, at least as far as we know, to enjoy the rest of their lives in relative comfort. Far more wrestlers pass away young. Excuse me, a 2014 study found that in people aged 50 to 55, the actuarial death rate was just over 5%. Amongst former World Wrestling Federation athletes, the death rate four times as high, around 20%. Why is that? We can look at the obvious first, things like injuries sustained in the ring that sometimes lead to bigger injuries with life-threatening complications. That's what eventually claimed the life of David Von Erich, third Von Erich brother, indirectly also Mike Von Erich, the fourth. Uh, uh, Excuse me, uh, David Von Erich, yeah, was the third. And no, Mike Von Erich, sorry, there's so many brothers, uh, was the fifth. Uh, David passed away from a mysterious stomach ailment in Japan while Mike, suffering from complications of toxic shock syndrome, would eventually commit suicide when he couldn't go back to wrestling as he had done before due to his injuries, including brain damage. And while recent studies have actually not shown the rate of suicide for pro wrestlers to be higher than it is for the general public, sure seems like suicide. Uh, You know, the rate's going to be higher for certain wrestlers due to a combination of injuries, drug dependence resulting from those injuries, and the use of steroids, which compromises brain functions related to processing emotions and decision-making and increases the odds of suffering a serious depressive episode. That'd be the case for Kerry Von Erich. Kerry would find massive success as a wrestler. Even after a motorcycle accident that claimed his foot, he would wrestle successfully for years as the Texas Tornado. Behind the scenes, however, he was suffering from drug dependency, depression, the loss of his foot, feeling that his life was out of control. Kerry would eventually die by shooting himself in the heart, no less, on his family's farm in February of 93. Then also contributing to the string of deaths of the Von Erichs, I think you have to look at family pressure. Not every wrestler really wants his kids to follow in his footsteps. But despite Kevin saying that they weren't pressured, sure seems like maybe the Von Erich boys were. Literally all the sons who made it to adulthood would try their hand at professional wrestling. You know, some kind of pressure had to lead to that. Uh, How much came from dad? How much came from just, you know, brothers pressuring each other in spoken or unspoken ways? We'll never know. When the oldest three boys found a lot of wrestling success, when the youngest saw how happy that made their dad, how happy that made their brothers, how much pressure did that put on Mike and Chris? Combine that with the two youngest brothers also being the smallest and both suffering numerous health problems. That's going to be real tough on both of them mentally. How much did that pressure lead to both of the youngest brothers committing suicide? No, brother, I don't think a curse had anything to do with the Von Erich deaths. I think some real bad luck, a series of unfortunate events, and probably too much male ego led to all the deaths. And here's what I mean by when I mentioned male ego. This family, when Fritz was at the peak of his promotional powers, right, they were making insane money. Fritz could have easily pushed his younger boys toward the promotional side of things, tried to keep them out of the limelight, you know, preach more to the being a wrestler is not for everybody. And maybe he did. But if so, uh, you know, I guess nobody wanted to hear it. They all wanted to be big man on the big wrestling stage, you know. I think his dad did at least just embody this, you know, man's man, you know, kind of uh, masculinity. And I'm sure the the sons felt pressure to live up to that. You know, Kerry, when he lost his foot, he could have owned that, showed some vulnerability, could have pushed his pride aside, became a inspirational. Look at how much this guy overcame every time he enters the ring, you know, kind of story. But his ego got in the way. He and the other brothers, they all wanted to be, you know, tough guys, show no weakness. They wanted to appear just as bulletproof, just as badass as their dad, Fritz, the guy whose own father forced him to fight other little kids when he was a little kid to be tough. 
And Fritz was a man who raised his own boys to be so comfortable with fighting, they would ask other kids around town if they wanted to throw hands. For Fritz, being a real man meant being tough, physically tough, dominating others. But what happens when you can't do that? When you're not built for that? Or when you're no longer built for that? What does that do to your, to your mental state? That alpha mentality can serve you well when everything's going well. When the steroids are padding your body with more and more muscle, when the girls are screaming your name at your matches, when your dad's running the biggest wrestling promotion in the nation. But what about when injuries start to mount up? When you're not getting the same exposure you used to, thanks to increased competition, when you're no longer seen as the man, I think that alpha mentality can really start to work against you. It doesn't always mesh well with life handling you or handing you some humble pie, right? You can start to, uh, I imagine, feel like you're just never going to make it back on top. You, and you can think if, if you can't be the best, well, what's the point of being at all? If you can't be an immortal scold dick and wrist mogging giga chad who has gym maxed himself to the highest heights of wrestling, why even get up in the morning? I don't know if any real curses exist. Fun to speculate about over on Scared to Death, but who knows what the truth is. In this case, I don't think an actual curse was at play. Just a series, again, of unfortunate events and short-sighted, needless, terrible, irreversible choices. Just because you can't be the best at something, Zach, that doesn't mean you shouldn't be. If you feel like you simply cannot achieve your dreams, well, maybe it's time to change your dreams up. That's always an option. If you're feeling unsuccessful, maybe it's time to redefine what it means for you to be successful. So much of life really is what we make of it. Or who knows, you know, maybe I'm just being a total pussy, brother. Hulkamania is not about settling, brother. It's about dominating. It's about sweat, blood, and tears, brother. It's about hitting one more set when you feel like you got nothing left in the tank, brother. It's about shooting up more needles of anabolic steroids than anyone else is willing to shoot, brother. It's about small balls and big gains. It's giga chat or die, brother. Come in off the top rope or don't show up at the fucking door, brother. Woo! quite have that last one with me <laughs> i don't think that's what it's about though i think there's a lot more to life than being the biggest and the baddest you know as cool as those real life action figure pro wrestlers do make that look now let's get to today's top takeaways time suck top five takeaways number one fritz von eric career first really took off when he portrayed a nazi heel nazi heel with a great finishing move the iron claw and some would think this character would be the origin of a true curse that will lead to him bearing five of six sons. Number two, a remarkable number of wrestlers do die young. There's even a Wikipedia page for it, premature wrestling deaths. While many of the deaths arise from different causes, we can point to some commonalities, things like poor health care, steroid use, addiction and dependency, stress, depression, and anxiety about a career where the highs are so high and the lows can be so low. Number three, wrestling has been around a long time. From our earliest days of civilization, we've always enjoyed watching two men, or sometimes two ladies, Go at it, whether that be in the dirt, in Greek wrestling academies, at carnival sideshows, or at the Dallas Sportatorium. Number four, Kevin Von Erich, the only original Von Erich family member still alive today. Number five, new info, a new movie in theaters as I record this titled The Iron Claw, dramatizes the Von Erich story and brings it to the big screen for the first time. It was made by Badass Studio, A24, released December 2023. Zach Efron plays Kevin Von Erich. Jeremy Allen White plays Carrie Von Eric. Harris Dickinson plays David. Stanley Simmons plays Mike. Uh, Holt McCannelly plays Fritz. Interestingly, the movie does not feature Chris. The director, Sean Durkin, stated that he was afraid that Chris's death would overload the movie with too much tragedy and make it veer into unbelievable territory. That's fucking crazy. You know your family's history is full of an insane amount of tragedy when Hollywood has to downplay real events to make your story seem believable. 
Time suck. Top five takeaways. The Iron Claw Curse of the Von Erics has been sucked. So hopefully my voice was not too distracting for this episode today. This curse of this Von Erics passed on to me in my voice. No, I'm not even going to say that because I uh, have a scratchy voice, not even close to what they went through. I take it back. Uh, thank you to Queen of Bad Magic and the rest of the team, including Tyler C., the Suck Ranger, recording this episode. Sophie Evans providing the initial research. Thank you to the Spacers on Patreon for continuing to support the show and get early release ad-free episodes. Thanks to the all Seen Eyes moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page, Mod Squad making sure the Time Suck Discord channel stays fun. And thanks to everyone over on the Time Suck subreddit and Bad Magic subreddit. Uh, also, check out badmagicmerch.com for any merch needs you may have. And now let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker Updates. Updates? Get your Time Sucker Updates. Okay, first up, I just want to share some comments from an insult-related post that Logan Tyler brought to my attention from our private Facebook group, Cold and Curious 3 out of 5 stars. Not going to share their last names since it was not set in, but I just, I thought this was fantastic. On Christmas Day, Stephen posted, Well, dude I went to high school with went full incel in his rant. Then he showed a screen grab of what this guy posted. Uh, Said, Women are incapable of love and breeding with the proper mate. There, I said it. Stephen then commented, What happened, dude? And that guy commented back with, I'm fed up. I've done and did everything. And most of all, I don't get what I want and I'm tired of it. I'm tired of every step taking the effort of overthrowing a dictator. I want a mate. I want kids, but these, this, this fucking, this is the craziest quote, but these fucking dumb fuck sleeves don't have what it takes to be a mate. Oh, and did I mention that I'm tired of the effort of working so much for what might as well be nothing? Someone better stand up or stand in to help me get what I want. That's insane, but common in incel forums. Steven replies with, well, that isn't the attitude to have, man. Just because you put work in doesn't mean anyone owes you anything. Relationships aren't transactional in the real world. You have to go expecting nothing and be fine if that's what happens. This attitude you are having isn't going to endear people to you. It's going to push them away and not want to be around you. I'm sorry you were having a rough time, but things will get better, especially if you go into life with a positive outlook. Those are some nice thoughts, Stephen. Good on you. Then under, you know, uh, uh, the screen grab and a lot of this, uh, some of our cult members posted the following. (laughs) So many funny people. Uh, Maya commented, oh my. For the sake of fuck sleeves everywhere, I sure as hell hope he never gets a mate, my God. Ian commented, wait, women don't want to marry and get pregnant from a man who calls them fuck sleeves? Color me shocked. Brock commented, about to go inside and call my wife a fuck sleeve. <laughs> Wish me luck. I'll send an update from the hospital. Ah, Josh comments, where can I get one of these fuck sleeves? He speaks of, I need it for um, science or something. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Carrie posts uh, and then one more Carrie first posts this angry incels comment in quotes somebody better stand up or stand in to help me get what I want and then they write or fucking what pencil wrists just <laughs> just gonna have to jack it solo for the rest of your life I guess and then a bunch of laughing emojis I love the line or fucking what pencil wrists oh god so good I just wanted to share some of the some of the stuff that goes on in our Facebook groups for anybody thinking of joining. God, there's so many cool, thoughtful, and just funny as hell meat sacks in there. It makes me so happy. Yeah, fuck sleeves. Yeah, I don't, I don't, if you think of women as fuck sleeves, dating's probably gonna be hard for you. 
I, I hope it's hard for you. Anyone okay with that is pretty damaged. And now you're just adding to their damage. Yeah, maybe try to see women as people first. You know, someone that just like you who has hopes and dreams, interests and desires, somebody not primarily defined by, you know, what they off- have to offer sexually. People first, women second. Uh, and uh, now for an insult related message about Jordan Peterson. I've gotten several of these types of messages, so I, I, I thought it would be, uh, you know, important to share one. Smart sack Tyler Dennis wrote in with the subject line of Jordan Peterson and the Encelosphere. All hail Smash Mouth Supreme, master of the Italian language. Oh, thank you. And proprietor of high quality sex toy keychains. I just finished the Encelosphere episode and wanted to write him some thoughts on a passing mention you made of Jordan Peterson being associated with that toxic group of whiners. You are correct in that he is often quoted by incels to justify their irrational beliefs. He's also quoted by neo-Nazis, far-right conservatives, and all other manner of extremists. The problem with this association is that they really only use one-liners from him. And if they actually listen to the full message he promotes, they would realize that his philosophy is in direct contradiction with their own worldviews. In fact, Jordan Peterson may be the mis- excuse me, may be the most misquoted person in the modern zeitgeist. I've read all of his books, and the ultimate thesis of his work is take responsibility for your own life. If you want to get a quick idea of what he actually stands for, just read the titles of the chapters of his book, 12 Rules for Life, An Antidote to Chaos. The first rule in this book is clean your room. The rest of the book goes on in the same vein, encouraging members or readers to be responsible citizens who treat people fairly and work constantly to improve themselves. And in so doing, improve the environment in which they live, thereby improving the lives of those around them. He's taken a lot of heat from the far left for some of his public stances on major world issues, starting with his strong opposition to Canada's Bill C-17, which compels citizens under penalty of law to refer to transgender individuals by their preferred pronoun. He saw this, rightly so in my opinion, as a violation of free speech and argued that social pressure, not legal compulsion, is what should compel people to act decently in their speech. This, of course, caused the far left to label him transphobic, and he's been under attack by them ever since. I challenge you to look into him a bit more before drawing too hasty of a conclusion on his character. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think you of all people, with your emphasis on critical thinking and being a decent meat sack, would really appreciate his message. I know countless people whose lives have been radically transformed for the better by reading his books and or listening to his lectures on YouTube, and I'm always quick to defend him whenever I hear someone use a single quote taken out of context to demonize him, especially when the quote is used to justify an ideology which he finds abhorrent. In fact, he's addressed the insult incel ideology multiple times and his opinion mirrors your thoughts on the topic almost exactly anyways i've been able to give you a a different anyways i hope i've been able to give you a different perspective on him and you can choose what to do with it from there sorry not sorry for the lengthy email and hail nimrod tyler yeah yeah tyler man thank you very much uh yes i've been hearing a lot about uh how misquoted he has been and and uh how the message you know he preaches messages if you take the time to really get in and understand them are actually very humanist and very practical, pragmatic, very much based in reason, critical thinking, promotion of individual freedom, less government control, censorship, legally mandated behavior, which is uh, very much my ethos. Uh, one of these days when I get more time, I-, I will have to check him out. So thank you for sending in a-, a thoughtful message about somebody I certainly may have misrepresented with their quote. Uh, God knows you could take my quotes out of context and very easily <laughs> make me look like someone who promotes the opposite kind of views that I actually have here. Now for a message related to our online community about our Discord server. This time, a, a sweet sack wrote in and did not want me to mention, excuse me, their name. Instead, they wanted me to focus on Discord. They wrote, hey, Dan and Bad Magic crew, I just want to start by saying thank you and sorry, not sorry for the long message. 
Since around the time of Revenge is Near and Crazy with a Capital F, I've been a fan of your comedy. I've had the chance of seeing you perform live before too. However, this is not about how funny you are. Rather, it concerns the community that you have established. You've gathered together some of the most amazing people. These intellectually curious meat sacks are willing to have a conversation and the occasional argument, but keep things civil. Now I'm really talking about the Discord server. Facebook is a dumpster fire on its best days. The Discord server, one of my favorite places to be. I found your podcast around the Marilyn Monroe episode. I listened to it off and on, a bit while I'd work. I love the mix of information and comedy. Shortly after that, I lost my house in a wildfire and the little things. Like looking forward to your podcast episodes, kept some joy around while dealing with all of that. Uh, after some more life nonsense, I finally got around to joining the Discord. I lurked around for a few months, but after talking, getting to know these people, it quickly felt like home. These people are some of the best I've ever met, and I enjoy having the opportunity to be part of this community. I found many good friends, some I'd even consider family. Also, I found someone eternally special to me there. So again, thank you for everything you do, even though, even through all the ups and downs that have made come along with what you've created, never forget that you've changed people's lives for the better. That's not including the amazing charity work you guys do. I'm sure I can speak for everyone and end this, how I began it by saying thank you very much. Sincerely, a Simple Meat Sack. Well, thank you, uh, Simple Meat Sack. And again, I'm so annoyed by my voice. I keep, uh, if I seem like I'm having like almost like belches too, I've been drinking the craziest amount of water <laughs> this episode to keep my voice going, but then my body is it's weird with it. Anyway, uh, the link to our Discord server that uh, the Simple Meat Sack is speaking of is in the episode description. So it's just a click away. If any of you listening want to check it out, uh, I pop in there for the occasional Fuck It Friday. They're, they're a great group. Fantastic moderators in there. Uh, so glad you've gotten so much out of this Simple Meat Sack. I, I hope uh, you sharing this brings more cool sacks into the server. And one more from OG Sucker who sends in a really cool message uh, with the subject line of following your dreams, the Colonel Sanders story. Uh, they wrote, Hey, Dan, Lindsay, and team. Very long time sucker here. Dan, Lindsay may remember me from previous contact. Yes, I do. But no worries if not. Anyway, following one's dreams. When I was six, I knew I wanted to be an actor, a name that was derided by everyone I knew. Although I was always chosen as leads in school plays, which was okay as long as I uh, didn't think I was, I don't know, pretty, who fuck knows, enough to do it for real. So, already a very anxious child. I learned to be quiet about it. Went to university, saw the kids who did theater, did not join in. Found it very hard to settle to any job because I had known for almost my whole life I was an actor, but even thinking about it seemed stupid and pretentious. As a result of this, I would myself never discourage a child from a particular path unless they wanted to be a career criminal. As even though they may survive financially another job, it might be fine or they might feel that they are not living any kind of real life and as you are not them, you will never know one way or the other. Well, I did other things, including journalism, hated offices, but accepted it. Who was I to think differently after all? Did manage drama school in my 30s and did some theater work, but I had a poor mental health by then and in a tough profession, so it amounted to little. Then after the office years, we adopted my son, whose special education needs and the educational system made our lives pretty horrible for years. Then in my 50s, I finally got an agent, started getting a few jobs. There is little call for female middle-aged actors of no profile, but I'm also an agent, so at least I know the industry a little. I will never be a theater or film star, and I have no desire to be, but I have a few lines here and there in short films and adverts. I'm doing a small-scale pro-theater pro uh, tour next year, and not theater and education either. It's quite enough. I have concluded that at least some of my mental health issues were uh, with had to do with me working in environments that divorced me from who I thought I was under the surface, and I refused to take that seriously because I accepted... I was living a sort of parallel life. And while there are homeless people out there and people in war zones, I was lucky. So now, a small way, for however long it lasts, 
I get to be myself. And when that time ends, if I have to give it up to look after my family, quite likely at some point due to our age and son's issues, that's okay too, because I did get to be the person I'd always been underneath, an enormous piece of luck. It doesn't have to be a huge success when one makes a dream come true, just enough to feel the satisfaction that for even a little while, the impossible actually happened. I don't suppose this would be update material, but if it were, please change my name. <laughs> okay. Uh, happy New Year to you all at Time Suck. Three out of five stars would recommend. Oh, and great to hear from Chicken Joe, my favorite side character ever. Uh, blank. Tyler, I'll just say this so I don't forget. <laughs> we have to change the name I said earlier. Just like a little beep it out. Noted. <laughs> uh, well, thank you, Blank. Uh, this is a great message. Fitting for today's episode. If, if you're, you know... Dream is to become a pro wrestler. That shouldn't mean, you know, you have to be the best ever to be happy, right? We hear stories about people like Michael Jordan, people who refuse to give up in their quest to be the very best. And in large part, due to their dogged determination, they do become the best. And then millions point to them during their own quests, right? So yeah, you have to believe. You have to uh, not take no for an answer to become the very best. And while there is truth in that, what you don't hear are the many, many, many other stories of people who also gave it their all to be the best and came up short for every one Michael Jordan. There are, I imagine hundreds of thousands, if not millions of other people who sacrificed so much worked so hard, never got where they were after, right? There aren't very many top slots in any given field, which means that, you know, a bunch of people thinking that the, to be happy, they have to take one of those slots statistically then is going to leave a whole bunch of people, uh, very unhappy and unfulfilled. So maybe we need to change that mindset, right? Go for the gold. Sure. But if it doesn't work out, you can change your perspective and feel good about trying. You know, like with this uh, this meat sack we just wrote in, all right, maybe you wanted to be a superstar actor and, and, and you didn't get that, but you starred uh, on some level in a, in a local community play. That's still pretty cool, right? You did something like you wanted to achieve. This reminds me of when I was a year out of college, I wanted to figure out how to audition for Saturday Night Live. I thought that's what I wanted to be, uh, a sketch comedy you know, performer. I wanted to be uh, big in the world of sketch comedy. I called up the Groundlings in LA, asked about how to take classes. And the person who answered the phone, I thought this was so weird at the time, but they asked me, well, why do you want to take classes? And I said, well, I want to be on Saturday Night Live. And they're like, well, why do you want to be on Saturday Night Live? I said, well, I, I want to be a sketch comedy star. And they asked me why I had that dream, you know, why I needed to do that. And I told them, well, I realized that's what I wanted to do when I was a star of a sketch comedy production at Gonzaga University. And people talked about some of my characters like the rest of the school year. And then this person on the phone, they told me, they're like, well, then you did it. You got your dream. You were a star of sketch comedy, right? You are, you're already there. What, what do you need? What else do you need? And that made like no sense to me at the time. I was just fucking annoyed. I'm like, what are they doing? Why is this fucking Riddler talking to me? But it makes so much sense now, right? I did taste my dream. Why couldn't that be enough? You know, if you get more, great. But don't ignore what you did get. And don't ignore, you know, uh, if you're, what is it, shooting for the moon? You know, you don't get there, but you, but you do get farther than you would have. If you wouldn't shot for the moon, well, enjoy wherever you got. So good on you, blank. Uh, you've already been an actor many times over and no one can ever take that away from you. You did achieve your dream just in a very different way than you initially imagined. Hail Nimrod, everybody. And thank you for the updates. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast. Scared to death, time suck each week. Please, 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 if you're lucky enough to build a multi-million dollar family wrestling dynasty and business this week, don't panic if your new empire starts to crumble. Nobody stays on top forever. 
All these castles we build really are built out of sand. Just enjoy the good times while they last. And when they're gone, you can revisit the good times in your mind and in your heart. And you can still come back here and be entertained by the trials and tribulations of others. And you can keep on sucking. Add Magic Productions. This Friday night at the Dallas Sportatorium, the Von Erichs take on the fucking Grim Reaper! Back from the dead, Fritz, David, Carrie, Mike, and Chris join forces with Kevin as Little Jack cheers them on to reverse the curse and rip a hole through the fabric of the space-time continuum and change the family's fate forever. Will five iron claws be enough to slam fate itself into submission? Get your tickets now. We'll sell you the whole seat. But you'll only need the edge, brother. Hot off the press from Maybelline New York, it's new Lifter Plump, an intense plumping lip gloss formulated with chili pepper to deliver a heated sensation for an instant plumping effect that lasts. From eight sizzling shades like Blush Blaze, Red Flag, Hot Honey, Cocoa Zing, and more, an extra-large wand applicator transforms lips in one swipe. Learn more at Maybelline.com. For a limited time, get 10% off your Lifter Plump purchase on Amazon with code 10PLUMP. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.